0: (音楽) Thank you.
1: People in the South African township of Kagiso, west of Johannesburg, have been hunting down migrant mine workers and setting fire to their homes. The violence comes days after eight women were gang-raped at an abandoned mine while filming a music video in an attack blamed on illegal miners. Our correspondent, Nomsa Maseko, was there.
2: We are in Kakiso, an area west of Johannesburg, where residents have been setting fire to homes that they believe uh, belong to illegal miners, known here as Zama-Zamas. Now they're trying to put out the fire because the danger here is that the fire could spread to other homes and all these people around us could lose all their belongings. Now, just last week, eight women were gang-raped, allegedly, by these illegal miners, and that is why community members have now taken to the streets trying to drive out all the undocumented African migrants who live in this area. There have been raids in this township almost every day since the gang-rape happened last week, Thursday, and, as a result, more than 130 illegal miners have been arrested they are so far facing charges of possession of explosives and illegal firearms they've not been charged though for rape because DNA analysis still needs to take place police have said though that as soon as DNA tests are concluded some of the hundred and thirty men who have been arrested could face rape charges as well behind me is an old mine dump and in there our ventilation shafts, and that's where illegal miners work from but the community here has had enough let them stop doing what they're doing killing our people raping them forcefully entering their houses and doing whatever that they do
3: they can just leave yeah for, for them living is going to be fine rather than saying an eye for an eye every time an eye for an eye is going to make the whole world blind so to avoid making the world. They're blind. They're rather cool. Then we stay in peace.
2: There are fears that protests such as this one could spread to other parts of Johannesburg, particularly in the east of Johannesburg, because that's where illegal mining is also rampant. Police have also been doing all they can here to disperse crowds and also clear the streets, but it has not been easy.
1: Nomsur Maseko in South Africa.
4: Space, the final frontier. These are the
5: voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone before.
6: Star Trek fans are mourning the death of Michelle Nichols. She played Lieutenant Uhura on TV and films, and in the 1960s, she was one of the first black women starring on a TV show. NPR's Montalit del Barco has this remembrance of a groundbreaking role model.
7: Hailing frequencies open, sir. Nichelle Nichols boldly went where few black actresses on TV had gone before when she played Lieutenant Nayota Uhura, chief communications officer of the starship USS Enterprise.
8: Strong interference on subspace, Captain. Planet must be a natural radio source.
7: Uhura traveled through the 23rd century communicating with aliens and exploring new planets, new civilizations. As earthlings were struggling with racial issues in 1968, Uhura shared one of the first on-screen interracial kisses with Captain James T. Kirk.
9: I am not afraid.
7: In a Star Trek special on the Smithsonian Channel in 2016, Nichols said that kissing scene shouldn't have been shocking. It's just two people like my grandmother and grandfather. Grandpa was white and grandma was black. (laughs) Nichols told NPR in 2011 that during the first season of Star Trek, she wanted to quit to pursue her dreams on Broadway. She handed her resignation letter to Gene Roddenberry, the show's creator. He was very upset about it, and he said... Take the weekend and think about what I am trying to achieve here, Nichelle. You are an integral part and very important to it. That weekend, she met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was a fan. She told him she was leaving the show. I think I said something like, Dr. King, I wish I could be out there marching with you. He said, no, no, no. No, you don't understand. We don't need you to march. You are marching. You are reflecting what we are fighting for. King convinced her to stay on board Star Trek, and she did, through the original 1960s series and six subsequent films.
10: Nichelle Nichols, aiming for the stars. Almost nine decades ago, a few years shy of a century, in fact, a black girl was born in Robbins, Illinois, the year 1932. That girl was actor Nichelle Nichols, who blazed to television fame in the series Star Trek, which debuted in 1966. She played the role of Lieutenant Nayota Uhura, the communications officer for the Starship Enterprise. An actor, singer, and dancer, She was discovered by the legendary jazz and big band composer, Duke Ellington. Her stunning beauty and dancer's carriage struck young boys and also inspired many young girls who aspired to a life on the stage. Although the original TV series only lasted until 1969, it sparked a franchise that continues to this day. As July marked its last Saturday, Nichelle Nichols left this life. Her son, Kyle Johnson, wrote the following message on her Facebook page. He wrote, Last night my mother, Nichelle Nichols, succumbed to natural causes and passed away. Her light, however, like the ancient galaxies now being seen for the first time will remain for us and future generations to enjoy learn from and draw inspiration michelle nichols played several other roles in her long career one that played on her science fiction role in star trek she called for applications from women and people of color to join nasa and thousands of applications poured in because of reruns new generations saw and enjoyed her star trek performances she lived to see 89 summers as lieutenant uhura would have said Hailing frequencies are now closed. For love, not fear. This is Mumia Abu Jamal.
0: Now our lives are in the hands of the pusher man. We break it all down in hopes that you might understand how to protect yourself. Don't make no profit for the man. I'm so glad. So glad that I can see my life's a natural hat. The man can't put no thing on me. I'm so glad I've got my own. So glad that I can see my life's a natural hat. The man can't put no thing on me. You're something. Kind
6: Superfly, the classic black exploitation film, celebrates its 50th anniversary today. NPR's Eric Deggans talked to several people who made the movie to discover how a scrappy independent film about a cocaine dealer became one of the most influential black-centered films in history.
1: Even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably know the theme song. Superfly. Along with Shaft, which was released a year earlier, R&B star Curtis Mayfield's theme for Superfly led one of the most successful movie soundtracks of the black exploitation era. It helped turn the film into one of the most profitable movies of its time, earning millions while briefly dethroning The Godfather as the top film of 1972. And since then, the movie's gritty, authentic depiction of street life and its flamboyant lead character, a sharp-dressing, karate-kicking drug dealer named Youngblood Priest, helped create archetypes which inspired legions of storytellers and musicians. There's films like New Jack City and TV shows like The Wire. In music, influences range from Mary J. Blige sampling Mayfield's Give Me Your Love for her hit, I'm the Only Woman, to Fishbone rocking out on a cover of Mayfield's hit, Freddy's Dead. Still, there's a lot some people don't know about the film Superfly, including the meaning of the title, which describes the high quality of cocaine that priest sold.
10: Fly was the term at the time. Well, that's fly, you know, looking fly. I put super to it and
11: made
1: Superfly. That's Philip Fenty, a former advertising executive who wrote the script for Superfly. Aware of the success of Shaft and inspired by a burgeoning, black-centered, independent film and theater movement in New York, Fenty wanted to write his own film. He saw a cover story in New York Magazine about a rising black drug dealer called The Man with the Golden Nose. And then a friend brought a dealer to Fenty's apartment in New York, wanting him not to square up or act too straight-laced.
10: He said, boy, don't you square up on me. <laughs> so, oh, please, come in. It was
1: truly one of the most incredible evenings I've ever spent my time. Fenty worked with Nate Adams, a boyhood friend, who developed the character's signature look by digging up the clothes himself. Adams also found the tricked-out car that Priest drives, a Cadillac Eldorado with custom Rolls-Royce-style grille and special headlights, driven by a guy at a local shoe shine parlor. They teamed with producer Sig Shore for funds, casting another friend from Cleveland, up-and-coming stage actor Ron O'Neill, as Priest, a smart player seeking one last score to get out of the life. Of course, another reason the film hit big was Mayfield's soundtrack, packed with hits like Freddy's Dead, Pusher Man, and the film's theme song. Todd Mayfield, Curtis's son, said his father began writing songs almost immediately after Fenty and Shore gave him a script creating songs with stories that added to the film's narrative.
5: The soundtrack made these characters more than one-dimensional, you know. It gave them some depth, and um, it it made you sometimes think about them in a little bit of a different way than the face value that you were seeing
1: early in the film. But not everyone loves seeing Black drug dealers and the street life humanized. Junius Griffin, then president of the NAACP's Beverly Hills Hollywood branch, is credited with coining the term blaxploitation shortly after the film's release, saying such films exploit black people while encouraging them to embrace destructive ideals. Sheila Frazier, who played Priest's girlfriend Georgia, still sees the word blaxploitation as an insult.
7: Oh, I can't stand it. You know, I can't stand it. They didn't call it white exploitation when we looked at Cagney films and a lot of the films that dealt with mafia and bootlegging.
1: Todd Boyd, a professor at the University of Southern California and a cultural commentator featured in the DVD commentary for Superfly, agrees with Frazier. He notes that Priest outsmarts corrupt cops and rivals to get out of a life that's dangerous and depressing. Um, there's a sense of Black power mixed with capitalism and uh, this desire to be kind of
12: a street entrepreneur. And, and to put it in a film, it kind of gives that pursuit of life meaning in a way that it wouldn't have had otherwise.
1: Superfly eventually spawned two half-hearted sequels and a 2018 remake film. Many of those involved in making the original movie, including O'Neal and Shore, have died. But the film's influence lives on. Frazier says Superfly succeeded by showing black people something they hadn't seen before.
7: That was one of the rare times that someone from the inner city won, and like he walked away with that one hair touched on his pretty head.
1: Fenty offers a simpler explanation. We in this country love outlaws. We still do.
10: So he was—he came from that from the bottom. Nobody to get to the top from the bottom. To be an outlaw.
1: As the nation still struggles with racism, poverty, police brutality, and social decay, the themes in Superfly remain resonant as ever, 50 years on. I'm Eric Daggins.
13: There's this uh, mystery man I've been been chasing for the better part of a year. Cooks the purest meth that uh, me or anyone else has ever seen. Goes by the name of Heisenberg. Hmm. Yeah, pretty weird, huh? I, I, I looked him up. It's uh, it was one of these physicists. One of Hitler's guys, a physicist named Werner Heisenberg. <laughs> Real cute, huh? Anyway, I figured with a handle like that, you know, my guy's got to be some sort of a some sort of an egghead. No offense. <laughs>
8: Good morning, I'm Asma Khalid. Some towns erect statues of people from local history. A big part of Albuquerque's history? The TV show, Breaking Bad. Bronze statues of the fictional meth cookers Walter White and Jesse Pinkman now occupy a place of honor in Albuquerque. State officials say they want to spotlight a booming entertainment industry. And with plenty of incentives for production companies, they want to make New Mexico the star of your next favorite show.
0: I know everybody who's heart is still thumping. It's drinking, shooting, snorting, or smoking on something (laughs) I feel like I fell in a hole (laughs) That hit
14: home everywhere (laughs)
0: Now that might sound funky, so I don't mean to mislead, so you can retract the thought of you on drugs or on weed, that ain't my business, you know what you do, I'm just singing for the majority of you, should I say Mr. Stone Junkie? my fellas, a great big round of applause.
14: products like Delta 8 are designed to get users high. Yet they're common enough that you can find them at many local corner stores, even in states where cannabis is not legal. And maybe because federal regulators have failed to monitor the contents of these products, there's been a rash of calls to poison control centers. Now, some states are starting to crack down. Ben Pavier from Member Station VPM reports.
15: Sean Dudley turned to Delta 8 during a period of upheaval in his life last year. he just graduated college and moved to Wisconsin, far from his friends and family in Virginia. He was feeling some of the post-college funk. The post-grad depression that you kind of get, you're like, oh, I'm not in college. What am I doing? Like, being an actual adult is weird. Dudley thought marijuana might help him take his mind off it all. But it's illegal in Wisconsin, and Delta 8 edibles were everywhere. I found ultimately that using Delta-8 was a much more, at the time, um, introspective and nice experience than any time that I had used weed. Dudley eventually moved back to Virginia, where adults are allowed to possess marijuana and stopped using Delta-8. He says the products have their place but should be regulated. I've definitely had like some Delta-8 gummies where they have just hit me so hard compared to others. It's something that Michelle Peace hears all the time. She's a lab director for forensic toxicology research at Virginia Commonwealth University. Peace often tests Delta-A products people send her.
6: There's a lot of concern around these kinds of products. Lucky Charms with a Z, Apple Jacks with a Z.
15: Some of those products have found their way into the hands of kids. Peace has found that labels are often inaccurate and the dosing can be uneven. Other researchers have found toxic metals. The products can be made using CBD, a chemical found in hemp plants.
6: You take CBD and with acid and thyme, it will convert to Delta-8 and Delta-9.
15: Delta-9 THC is the stuff in marijuana that gets you high. The 2018 federal farm bill said hemp plants could only have a trace amount of the chemical. But it didn't say anything about other THC compounds that have a similar effect. That led to the explosion of Delta-8 products. Other concoctions are popping up all the time, like Delta-THCO and HHC. Peace says they can be even more potent.
6: Delta-8 is like, look at me, look at me, and there's a monster behind the bush, right?
15: So far, Congress hasn't taken up the issue. But states like Colorado and Oregon have passed laws banning Delta-8 products. Other states, like Texas and Kentucky, are facing lawsuits from the hemp industry over new restrictions. That hasn't stopped regulators in Virginia from announcing a ban on delta Eight products. I want to thank all of you for your participation here this afternoon. Virginia's Secretary, of agriculture, Secretary Lohr, of agriculture, Matt Lohr, tried to strike a friendly note with a largely hostile audience at a hemp
16: commission meeting earlier this month. And I have to say, when we took office six months ago, I had no idea that this topic of hemp and hemp extracts would be as big of a topic as
15: it has become. But most people at the meeting said he shouldn't have been surprised. And PROCESSOR Kerry MCCORMICK SAID THE STATE'S NEW REGULATIONS ONLY HURT SMALL BUSINESSES.
16: I'M ABOUT 45 MINUTES FROM THE TENNESSEE BORDER. ABOUT 15 OF MY JOBS ARE ABOUT TO GET OUTSOURCED TO TENNESSEE. THAT'S GOING TO BE ON, on THIS COMMITTEE HERE.
15: OTHERS hey, AT THE MEETING ARGUED really THE BAN like WILL ONLY PUSH PEOPLE TO THE BLACK MARKET, AWAY FROM PRODUCERS WHO ARE MAKING LAB-TESTED PRODUCTS. AND EVEN AS STATE REGULATORS TRY TO RESTRICT DELTA-8 PRODUCTS, IT'S NOT HARD TO FIND ONLINE SELLERS WILLING TO SHIP IT RIGHT TO YOUR DOOR. PR news. I'm Ben Javier in
0: Richmond. Two bags flee for a generous speed. Make it work.
17: Ongoing pandemic and conversations around reproductive rights at the forefront, pharmacies are playing an increasingly important role in our health. But for some parts of Chicago's South and West Sides, drugstores are becoming a rarer sight, especially the big chains like Walgreens and CVS. One researcher calls these areas pharmacy deserts. WBEZ's Esther Yoonji Kang, together with the Chicago Sun-Times, looks at this trend. Monica Mitchell has lived in South
8: Shore for more than 20 years. And during that time, she's had to change pharmacies
17: three times. There was a Walgreens, a two-minute drive away, that closed. Then there was a CVS. And that was maybe three minutes away. That one closed.
8: There was another CVS about 12 minutes away, and that one was shut down after the 2020 George Floyd protests. It's back now, but another Walgreens she used to go to has also shut down.
17: I basically have to travel further and further away to get what I need.
8: Mitchell is a nurse. She knows the importance of medications and access to pharmacies.
17: It is life or death. There's a lot of asthma, diabetes, hypertension in this neighborhood. Not having to go so far out to get the medications that you need because time is of the essence. It, it's needed to save lives.
8: As drug stores provide more vital services like COVID tests and vaccinations, contraceptive counseling and wellness visits, Data shows that low-income communities on Chicago's south and west sides have fewer pharmacies than other parts of the city, especially the big names. So we hear these announcements about CVS and Walgreens closing. I just worry
6: because I suspect, based on what I know from the data and the research that I've
8: done, the vast majority of those pharmacies are going to be in low-income neighborhoods. That's Dima Kato. She's a professor at the University of Southern California. But before that, she did a lot of research in Chicago on the lack of access to pharmacies in Black and brown neighborhoods. There have been closings in white, higher-income neighborhoods too. But those neighborhoods have enough pharmacies. So they may be closing there and opening another store somewhere. But when they close in low-income neighborhoods or on the South Side, we rarely see another pharmacy opening. Cato calls these areas pharmacy deserts. In Chicago, nearly half of black neighborhoods are pharmacy deserts compared to just 1% of white neighborhoods. That's the widest gap in the nation. In terms of chain pharmacies, WBEZ found that access to a CVS store in Chicago was seven times higher in white neighborhoods than in black ones. For Walgreens, it was two times higher. One problem is that in low-income neighborhoods where a lot of customers are on Medicaid or Medicare, profit margins are lower for pharmacies. Cato says government can help with that. The federal level, I think higher reimbursement rates for Medicare
6: Part D prescriptions are critical, opening networks, making sure pharmacies in low-income minority neighborhoods across the country, whether it's an urban area or rural,
8: are In those networks, so people could actually go there to get their medications. Another way is to make policies to ensure that companies that open in low-income neighborhoods, well, stay. There has to be more accountability
6: really and responsibility. You can't just serve certain
8: neighborhoods and leave. And you know, your response is, you know, it was a business decision. WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times reached out to Walgreens and CVS. Walgreens says in the Chicago area, 99% of residents live within two miles of a Walgreens. CVS says its closings are a small percentage of the company's overall store presence in the city. But that's little comfort to Renita Johnson. She lives in the Roseland neighborhood on the south side, and she's seen a number of pharmacies close nearby. She's glad to have a car to help her get around, But
14: if you're trying to get on public transportation, if you're a truly elderly person who has difficulty getting around, I would see it as a total nightmare.
8: Johnson sees pharmacy deserts as another example of structural racism. She says the closings are part of a larger trend, grocery stores and other retailers leaving the area
14: one other strike against the black community does it surprise me no does it sadden me yes
8: standing in front of the woodson regional library in the washington heights neighborhood melvin thompson points to a building kitty corner from the library
10: that used to be the walgreens it's kind of painful just looking at that
8: thompson leads the andaleo institute a nonprofit born out of trinity united church of christ He says pharmacies, especially the big chains, were trusted sources.
10: And that trust was broken when they deserted these communities.
8: He says corporations might have their financial reasons, but...
10: There's some kind of morality to to this. At the end of the day, you're not going out of business because you're located at 95th and Halston. You're not going bankrupt because you are serving a community that's coming to you religiously.
8: IN SOME OF THESE NEIGHBORHOODS, THOMPSON SAYS THE nonprofits HAVE HAD TO FILL THE VOID LEFT BY PHARMACIES. HIS GROUP, FOR EXAMPLE, HAS A PANTRY DISTRIBUTING HEALTHY FOOD. THEY ALSO WORK ON DEVELOPMENT PROJECTS THAT BRING THRIVING BUSINESSES TO THE COMMUNITY. THOMPSON SAYS THROUGH PREVENTIVE MEDICAL CARE, EDUCATION AND HEALTHY FOOD OPTIONS.
10: WE WANT TO PUT THEM OUT OF BUSINESS. WE WANT TO PUT THE PHARMACIES AND, and MEDICAL INDUSTRY OUT OF BUSINESS.
8: He says if communities work to eliminate the health conditions that require medicine, then maybe they won't need as many pharmacies as they once had. Esther Yunji Kang, WBEZ News.
5: What is this? Data from a top-secret military project, born of the idea that sleep is the soldier's greatest enemy.
3: The was conducting sleep deprivation experiments on Paris Island.
5: Not deprivation, eradication. Why? Why else? To build a better soldier. Sustained wakefulness dulls fear, heightens aggression. Science had just put a man on the moon, so they looked to science to win a losing war. And Willing and Cole were a lab rats. Lab rats with the highest kill ratio in the Marine Corps. Four thousand plus confirmed kills for a 13-man squad. You think Cole's behind what's happening now? I'm not here to do your thinking, Agent Mulder. All I know is Augustus Cole hasn't slept in 24 years.
18: Lack of sleep in children and teenagers affects brain development. That is the key finding by researchers in one of the largest studies of its kind. They observed a significant difference between those who slept for fewer than nine hours a night and those who slept longer. They collected data from nearly 8,500 nine- and ten-year-olds and compared it with the same group two years later. The lead researcher, Xie Wang, a professor of diagnostic radiology and nuclear medicine at the University of Maryland in the US, told my colleague Sana Safi more about what they found.
4: We found that two different things. The so first is that for the children who slept in less than the recommended nine hours, they showed detrimental effects like in the brain structure and function and the behavior and the mental health. And the second the concerning finding is that you know these effects actually persisted after two years.
2: And tell us about this gray matter of the brain, which your study showed developed less well with less sleep. What happens in the gray matter
4: of the brain? So what we found is that for them, a group with uh, insufficient sleep, they had you know, less gray matter volume in several critical brain regions that are known to be involved with emotion, cognitive control, memory, sexual. So the less gray matter volume there just means there is something going on in the part of the brain that the neurons may either be just less density or the size of the neurons is smaller.
2: And in general, what happens in sleep, which is so important for the brain?
4: So sleep is very important for the entire life, right? So usually during sleep, the brain produces one type of fluid called cerebral spinal fluid. So that fluid, you know, is the major tool to clean up the brain, to get rid of the metabolic waste that generated during the daytime. That's, you know, for the whole lifespan. For the children, you know, pre-adolescents, sleep is particularly important, mainly because, you know, sleep is the critical time for memory consolidation. And also we know that sleep is the time that the brain produce the maximum level of growth factor. You know, also during sleep, the body can break up other protein or other hormones that make the body tired.
2: So what would you recommend for parents to do? Should they get children to get at least nine hours of sleep?
4: So for this particular age, my suggestion that we should definitely, you know, encourage the kids to get more sleep. And the pattern of sleep was so really important, right? So based on these findings, if we get involved, ask the kids to sleep more, the earlier, right, the better. So eventually that will help reduce these kind of effects. There are many tips that can help improve the sleep. For example, the kids can take more physical activity at daytime or reduce the screen time or take, you know, some procedures like meditation to reduce stress and anxiety. And also, finally, I would suggest keeping a healthy learning and activity schedule. Do not frequently change the circadian region.
19: That was Professor Zhe Wang. Yo, 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 time up in Jersey, yo. <laughs> what if you could get traffic fatalities down to zero? Well, the city of Hoboken, New Jersey, just across the river from New York City, seems to have done it. Nobody there has died from a collision with a car in four years. Ryan Sharp is here to explain how they made that happen. He is Hoboken Director of Transportation and Parking. Welcome to All Things Considered.
16: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
19: So according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, almost 43,000 people in the U.S. died in motor vehicle traffic crashes last year. That is the highest number since 2005. So while numbers all over the country were going up, how did Hoboken get the number to zero?
16: That's a great question. Hoboken has been playing a long game when it comes to traffic safety for a number of years, uh, dating back before COVID and playing the long game through uh, incremental changes and improvements over a series of years. So
19: you talk about incremental changes and improvements. Like if you and I were going for a walk through downtown Hoboken, what are some of the specific things we would see that have made a difference?
16: Well, uh, a lot of the things that Hoboken has been doing to improve traffic safety are low cost, they're quick implementation, but they're also high impact. So we know through our, our crash data that about 88% of crashes happen at intersections. So we have focused on trying to reduce conflicts at, at our intersections, especially on our high crash corridors. So things like trying to improve sight lines at corners by doing what we call daylighting. So that can be installing something as as simple as as what we call a vertical delineator post or a flexible bollard. These posts get installed within 25 feet of crosswalks, and they physically restrict cars from parking right up against a crosswalk.
19: So it's not a blind corner. If you're going to take a turn, somebody's going to see you. If you're going to cross the street, you can spot the
16: cars that are coming. That's correct. It's a very simple, cost-effective thing you can do, um, but it has a big impact Uh, One thing that you won't see is something called a leading pedestrian interval. And basically what that means is uh, we've programmed our traffic signals to give pedestrians a few second uh, head start when they get into the crosswalk during their pedestrian phase without having to worry about turning vehicles.
19: Oh, yeah. I've seen that here in D.C. too. The walk light turns on before the green light goes. Your plan seems to de-emphasize car ownership and create space for pedestrians and cyclists. How often do you hear from drivers who feel like you're squeezing them out? And what do you tell them?
16: Well, the goal of the Vision Zero program is to focus on safety for all modes of transportation. Uh, What we know, though, through our crash data is that pedestrians and cyclists in, in particular are the most vulnerable users of the streets in Hoboken. And that's pretty much the same for every city in the country. And so culturally, people elevate pedestrian safety in Hoboken at the top of the hierarchy. So even if you commute to work uh, by car, at some point, you're going to be a pedestrian in Hoboken. So we try to not pit any one mode against each other as much as possible.
19: There are a lot of cities that have implemented Vision Zero programs to reduce traffic fatalities. But in places like Washington, D.C., deaths have actually increased since that goal was announced. What makes Hoboken
16: different? Well, it's hard to speculate what's working well or not working well in other cities. But in Hoboken, uh, an incremental approach over several years that includes uh, more than just engineering, but also education and uh, a focus on changing the culture. The simple improvements like daylighting or leading pedestrian intervals or adding curb extensions, these things are still in place and they've been having a positive impact And people have gotten used to seeing these things in town and they ask for more. So it's continuing to build off its own success. And, you know, frankly, we've been fortunate so far not to have a setback, but that can happen at any time, right? We're well aware that it's happened in other cities. So we're continuing to push ahead with new initiatives again and again to try to continue to keep that progress in place.
19: That is Ryan Sharp, Hoboken's Director of Transportation and Parking. Thanks
16: a lot. Thank you
0: college don't mean shit y'all niggas
3: and you gonna be niggas forever just like us
15: niggas implement a policy that it could have serious consequences for the cincinnati police department
12: we're looking to try to move this as fast as possible
18: Cincinnati Councilman Scotty Johnson is upping the ante on his push to change a policy that governs what happens to police officers caught using language that's racist, homophobic, or misogynistic. Johnson wants officers who utter offensive words while on duty dismissed from the force ASAP. As we've reported, it's become an issue after four officers, one of whom is now in Evendale, have faced disciplinary actions in the last four years for using the n-word.
12: It's important that we move this as fast as possible with the administration to get this implemented time frame i mean is language being looked at right now? we would we would we were trying we would love to see something in place by the end of the month
18: one point of debate will likely center on what's called progressive discipline which describes the way officers who make mistakes are punished now it's an approach that allows for second chances but it could become divisive since johnson and others are calling
2: for zero tolerance the code that dictates the progressive discipline needs to be changed right now
20: First thing you need to know, that the union agrees, racial slurs, homophobic statements, those are always wrong and they should not be tolerated. But we have to talk about progressive discipline, reasonableness, whenever we're talking about administrative law. And whenever I hear zero tolerance, I always think of the kid who chewed his Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun and was dismissed out of school for that. You have to allow for past records, you have to consider other things rather than just an absolute zero tolerance. That means we're taking other people's judgment out of this completely.
15: Now, in addition to FOP leader Dan Hills, who you just heard from, I also spoke today to the president of the Sentinels. That's the union that represents African-American officers here in the city. Captain Danita Pettis said she's waiting to see what's in the proposal when it's finally crafted before weighing in. But like Hills, Pettis said nobody should use offensive language like the N-word. Reporting live tonight, Todd Dykes, WLWT News 5. Todd,
7: thanks so much.
16: I'm with ATT Fiber. Okay. Thanks for being a-
9: Did you hear that? an unprovoked racial attack caught on camera. A man soliciting for AT&T directs a racial slur at a South Fulton family's teenaged son. This all happened yesterday afternoon and the audio was recorded on the ring camera.
21: Well, CBS 46's Crystal Bowie speaks exclusively with the family as
22: they
18: call for action.
22: This man was going door to door soliciting AT&T customers Fiber. on Concord Loop in South Fulton.
16: I'm with at and Fiber.
22: 16-year-old Montrell Godley answered through the ring camera and said he needed to talk to his father first. But that's when the man walked away saying this.
16: Okay, thanks for being
22: a- We've bleeped out the moment he calls Montrell the derogatory N-word, and he appears to use it a second time as he walks towards the driveway. It's
9: good, I'm just
22: being a- The family, shaken and traumatized by what they saw on camera.
3: I was not shocked. Because this is my first time ever having to deal with anything like this, so I didn't expect that, and it was—I was uh, lost the word—a
22: hateful, hurtful attack. No one should have to experience.
3: It's just something that no African American should accept.
22: Montrell's dad, just as frustrated as his son.
3: That stuff is unacceptable. Um, It's offensive. It's painful. It's hurtful. Um, and it can, lean, it can leave long-lasting, damaging scars.
22: And he wants action immediately. I
3: don't think that somebody who has that type of hatred in their heart needs to be going into communities.
22: Even willing to take that action himself.
3: Somebody need to sit down and talk to him. I'd even be willing to sit down and talk to him and explain to him, like, the damage that you cause with the choice of words that you use.
22: AT&T says they have terminated the relationship with the vendor. They released a statement saying in part, quote, this vendor's behavior is vile and offensive and goes against everything we stand for as a company. And if you have additional information, the family hopes that you report and also speak up about what you saw and what you heard. Reporting in South Fulton, Crystal Bowie, CBS 46 News. Let me say
0: something that gets to the very point. And this may be offensive for some to hear who are not on the side that we're on. White people, we have been the
20: problem for 400
0: years. Say that again.
20: Let me say it one more time for those of you who didn't hear me. White people, we have been the problem for 400 years.
18: An Appleton man now in jail tonight accused of attacking a woman out for a walk. 54-year-old Stephen Huss was arrested on Friday, now charged with battery, robbery, and disorderly conduct in an incident in an alley behind his home. Emily Matusik spoke with the woman attacked by Huss who recorded part of the incident on her cell phone. Emily joins us now live in Appleton with more. Emily.
6: Yeah, Bill, it was a rough 20-year, rough day uh, for 22-year-old Natasha Fuller, who went for a walk at about 5 o'clock last Friday, again in this alley behind me. She was attacked and remains fearful tonight.
17: I was alone, I was non-responsive, I wasn't really paying attention. Like I said, I had been crying before that, just listening to my music. And-
6: Natasha Fuller still is struggling to come to terms with what happened in this alley last Friday. Traumatized. It's hard to talk. I have a lot of anxiety. According to the criminal complaint, Stephen Huss admitted to attacking Fuller after pulling his truck into the alley behind his College Avenue home. He says he honked at the woman and yelled at her to get out of the way before driving past her and stopping in the alley, fearing for her safety. Fuller began recording on her cell phone.
14: Why are you walking in the middle of the alley?
6: Capturing Huss, knocking her to the ground, causing her to cut her head. He then took her phone and drove off. After speaking with Huss's wife, police say he turned himself into authorities, was arrested, and is now charged. Natasha Fuller says justice and forgiveness go together, but she's still looking
17: for peace. I will be okay, you know what I mean? But there's a lot happening and just try to process, what does life look like after this? Where do we go from here? You know, am I safe? Are other people safe?
6: And Huss remains in jail on $1,500 cash bond. Fuller continues to deal with the fallout from the attack, but she says she is thankful for the kindness and compassion she received from the Appleton Police Department as she continues to deal with what happened. Reporting live in Appleton, Emily Matesek, Action 2 News.
13: judge has sentenced a former oil worker from Texas to more than seven years in prison in a case related to the assault on the U.S. Capitol. The sentence is the hardest punishment yet in a case connected to the riot. NPR justice correspondent Kerry Johnson reports.
9: Guy Reffett stands in a class of his own, the judge said, because he didn't just want to stop the electoral count at the Capitol. Instead, he wanted to overthrow the government and yank House Speaker Nancy Pelosi out of the building. Reffitt didn't assault police on January 6th, and he didn't break into the building. But he did bring a gun holstered on his hip, and he waved rioters past him to overwhelm law enforcement. Prosecutors said Reffitt is still portraying himself as a martyr willing to take a bullet for freedom and issuing belligerent statements from inside the D.C. jail. When it came time for Reffitt to speak, he said January 6th was a big blur and that he had acted like an idiot. Refit promised not to associate with politics or militia groups from now on. The judge said she'd sentence him to seven and a quarter years, but she declined to add more punishment for domestic terrorism. Outside the courthouse, Refit's wife, Nicole, said her husband had backtracked in court to get the judge to show mercy.
6: We are patriots.
17: Guy was a patriot that day. He will always be a patriot.
9: In some ways, the Refit family has been divided just like parts of the country, daughter Peyton Reffitt said. Americans are not a united country. We are divided, and that is not okay." Peyton said her father wasn't the leader at the Capitol. Because it was Trump's name on the flags, that's what I meant. That's all I meant. Another daughter, Sarah, also invoked former President Donald Trump. To mark my dad as this horrible person, and then having him prosecuted like this, when somebody is maybe even able to get elected again, doesn't seem right to me. Their brother Jackson turned in their father to the FBI and testified against him at the trial this year. Jackson didn't turn up in court this week, but he sent a letter asking the judge to get his father mental health services. Refet has already spent more than a year and a half in the D.C. jail. The judge said she hopes he'll seize the opportunity to speak to other rioters and become part of a solution in this country. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington.
3: You know, and uh, I never get after one of our championships, Frank says, hey, Russ, after season's over, why don't you come down and spend a week with me down in Kentucky? I said, Frank, you're a good guy. There's nowhere in hell I'm going to go spend a week in
0: Kentucky. <laughs>
13: The Justice Department has charged two former and two current police officers in Louisville, Kentucky, in the killing of Breonna Taylor. The charges are the first to be filed in connection with the death of a 26-year-old emergency medical technician. From member station WFPL, Bria Jones has more.
23: The four officers face federal charges, including civil rights violations, unconstitutional use of force and other offenses. In 2020, Brianna Taylor was killed after police burst into her apartment in the middle of the night on a botched drug raid. Fearing intruders, Taylor's boyfriend fired once at police, and they shot back, killing her. Kristen Clark is the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights with the U.S. Justice Department.
17: These indictments reflect the department's
7: commitment to preserving the integrity of the criminal justice system and to protecting the constitutional rights of every American.
23: Taylor's family gathered in Louisville with their attorneys and local activists following the announcement. Tamika Palmer is Taylor's mother. She's always maintained that the police had no reason to be there, and then they lied about what happened.
2: Y'all learning what we've been seeing was the truth, that they shouldn't have been there and that Brianna didn't deserve that. Y'all
23: learning that today that we not crazy. Palmer said for the past two years, people did not believe her when she said that there was something wrong, that there was a cover-up but she says the DOJ's announcement shows officers obtained their search warrant fraudulently. Palmer specifically called out Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron's lack of action in properly investigating her daughter's death.
2: He was dead wrong. Yeah, dead wrong. It didn't start with him, but he had the first he had the right to do the right thing and he yes. chose not to. So again, I've waited 874
17: days for today.
23: There's still an ongoing federal investigation into the Louisville Police Department, looking into whether it has a pattern of misconduct. That investigation is separate from these charges. For NPR News, I'm Bria Jones in Louisville.
5: COINTELPRO was the code word for counterintelligence program, and it was a program that the FBI
21: created in 1956 to go after the Communist Party with intentions of trying to neutralize the party, put it out of business.
10: We can say that the Coen Taco was a kind of codification for white supremacy in America because the function of the FBI was to preserve white political, social, economic
24: supremacy in America. Photographer Ernest Withers captured some of the most indelible images of the civil rights era. The photo of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. riding one of the first desegregated buses in Montgomery, Alabama the iconic image of black sanitation workers carrying I am a man signs in Memphis. And he was the only photojournalist to document the entire trial and the murder of Emmett Till. But Withers was also an FBI informant, funneling information to the Bureau about the civil rights movement and its leaders. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry joins us now to talk about his new podcast called Unfinished, Ernie's Secret, which explores the government's efforts to infiltrate and disrupt the civil rights movement and the man who was caught in the middle. It's great to have you here, the podcast is phenomenal.
13: Thank you so much, I'm glad you're enjoying it.
24: So tell me more about Ernie Withers, who he was apart from his life as an FBI informant, because his biography in so many ways is a cross-section of Memphis history, it's a cross-section of American history, he's this World War II vet, the first, one of the first black cops in Memphis, and then he becomes a freelance photographer.
13: Yeah, Ernest Withers is fascinating, and he gets into photography in part while he's in the armed services. Uh, he would take photos um, and of the uh, other enlisted men and sell them to them, so they could send them back to their wives and girlfriends, or maybe both their wife and girlfriend, depending on the guy, right? Selling I mean, them, not giving yeah, them. Correct, back, right? Yeah. You know, well, he, he was he was a, a smart, industrious guy, right? And so he, when he gets back to Memphis, uh, does a stint as a police officer, but then becomes essentially the black photographer in Memphis. And so he documented everything, homecomings, repass classes, just everyday black life. He also uh, was obsessed with Negro League baseball. And Mm. so he would travel and and shoot photos of all of these black baseball players across the country. And then also Memphis has Stacks Records in it. And so he photographed so many musicians, be it uh, Elvis and Aretha Franklin and Tina and Ike and and so many folks. And so, in fact, when you go to Memphis, uh, his old studio on Beale Street is now a museum uh, where you can see this remarkable uh, collection of photographs by Ernest.
24: And how did he find his way into those moments where he was so close to Dr. King and so many other icons of the civil rights movement?
13: Ernest Withers is probably best known for his civil rights work. He photographed basically every major campaign across the South. He's present when James Meredith is integrating Ole Miss. He's in the room when two men are being charged with the murder of Emmett Till. He's there when King is riding the first desegregated bus. And part of it was that He was just kind of everywhere. He was someone you trusted. He was a piece of the furniture, you know. And and he was someone who, especially the civil rights leaders, knew and respected and believed would tell the story accurately, right, that that would document what was happening. And so people were happy to have Ernest around. You know, Andrew Young, uh, one of King's chief lieutenants, told us, you know, that they always answered Ernest's call. If he wanted information, Mm -hmm. they always gave it to him.
24: And all the while he was living this second life as an FBI informant during what is now this infamous period of American history where the FBI was in- involved in domestic surveillance, illegal domestic surveillance. Why wouldn't Ernest Withers be valuable to a J. Edgar Hoover at the time?
13: So we have to remember the FBI at the time had no black agents, right? They couldn't just show up at a civil rights meeting. Um, in fact, this was a time when FBI agents were particularly being recruited by Hoover to be, you know, white guy Republicans from Omaha, right? They had a specific <laughs> look. And and we love Omaha, right? But right, you know what right, I right. mean, right? They had a yeah. very specific, clean-cut look. That is not the best workforce if the thing you're trying to do is infiltrate a black civil rights movement that's playing out primarily in, in urban centers across the country, right? And so... These human assets became vitally important for the FBI. People who could be in a room, who knew everyone's name, who would introduce themselves, who could ask for someone's address and it not be suspicious. And so, what Curtis ends up being is a sponge of information. Now, he already was one, right? Mm-hmm. He was a local photographer. He knew everybody and their and their mother and their cousin. He knew where they lived. He yeah. knew when their birthday was, right? So, he already had a lot of that information. But now, the FBI was able to kind of prime him for it and to and to ask for questions. You know, a lot of what. Ernest did was he sold them photographs, photographs he would take otherwise and that he might otherwise sell to the Associated Press or to the black paper. He would shoot a protest all day, he would get all the caption information, and then he would sell a roll of film to the FBI. And now, suddenly, at a time before the Internet, before a lot of the databases we now have and law enforcement now has, they now have photographs and names and, in some cases, addresses and phone numbers for people who they otherwise might not have known how to track.
24: One of the primary threads that runs through the podcast is sort of the moral ambiguity of the day, that in many ways Mr. Withers didn't have a choice, that when the federal government comes and says, you know, we want information that only you can provide,
13: he didn't really have a choice. It's interesting, right? When you listen to Ernest Withers' family and the one time he ever addressed this before he passed, right, there's an insistence that he was not an informant in the the worst sense of the word, right, Mm -hmm. that he was someone who was selling photographs, uh, that the FBI was a customer like anyone else, and that also, what was he supposed to do? He's a black man at a time when black men don't even have the right to vote. The federal government has come to him and said, we need to stop the communist infiltration, uh, because that was the pretense under which Hoover uh, harassed the civil rights leaders, including King. And here you have this black man with six children to feed, who's not particularly wealthy, And how do we gauge now, so many years later, if he thought he had a real choice when he was asked to do these things or if he didn't?
24: As I was listening to the podcast, my ears perked up when I heard the voice of Ambassador Andrew Young. The reason I bring him up is because he told you that he wasn't surprised that there was someone spying on the work that they were doing, that there was an FBI informant in their midst. But he also suggested that he didn't care all that much, that in his mind, he had nothing to hide. The SCLC at the time had nothing to hide, and as he saw it, it was good to be super transparent, whether it was with the FBI or whomever about the work that they were doing.
13: That is what Andrew Young said. It's actually interesting because I've gotten a lot of feedback on that particular quote from people. Right? I know I know modern day activists who are like, "What's wrong with Andrew Young? Is he, is he serious? Like, yeah. can, can you believe that?" I've heard from other people. Oh, I guess that makes sense.
24: I bet those activists are pretty young.
13: Yeah, so they yeah. are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I. I think it cuts in a few different directions. The first is that a lot of the people from the time, people who knew Ernest in real time, have been pretty forgiving of, of this information that's come out. Part of it, I think, is that so much time has passed, right? A lot of this is in, in the rearview mirror. There's also a reality where, as frustrated and upset as people are about the FBI surveillance, the idea of holding Ernest personally accountable for what was clearly the sins of one of those powerful institutions in American society is something I think a lot of the black activists are willing to, you know, kind of be kind about. Uh, But there are other activists who are. Furious with him, who, who are really upset. Dick Gregory, when this news initially broke, called him Judas. I do wonder if we could go back in time and, and interview an Andrew Young 40 years younger, 50 years younger, if perhaps he might be less generous to Ernest Withers in real time yeah. as he is in retrospect.
24: It's an interesting question. Wesley Lowry, the podcast, is a fascinating look at a really important a part of American history, congratulations. I've seen top secret documents
3: from the White House authored by Nixon communicating with J. Edgar Hoover specifically about the Panthers. The Black Panther Party was looked at as the number one threat to the internal security of the United States of America. These are word by word verbatim quotes from J. Edgar Hoover.
25: Albert Woodfox, who was held in solitary confinement longer than any prisoner In U.S. history, has died at the age of 75 due to complications of COVID-19. The former Black Panther and political prisoner won his freedom six years ago. After surviving nearly 44 years in solitary confinement, he helped establish the first chapter of the Black Panther Party at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola to address horrific conditions at the former cotton plantation. In 1972, he and a fellow imprisoned Panther, Herman Wallace, were falsely accused of stabbing prison guard Brent Miller to death. Woodfox and Wallace always maintained their innocence and said they were targeted for their organizing with the Black Panthers. Miller's own widow would later urge the state of Louisiana to free Albert Woodfox after she became convinced he was innocent. Woodfox, Wallace, and a third Black Panther, Robert King were collectively known as the Angola Three. For decades, Amnesty International and other groups campaigned for their release. Robert King was freed in 2001. Herman Wallace was freed in 2013, only after a federal judge threatened to jail the warden of Angola prison if he refused to release him that day. Herman Wallace died one day after his release of liver cancer. But the state of Louisiana continued to refuse to release Albert Woodfox. He was eventually freed on his 69th birthday, February nineteenth, 2016. We're joined now by three guests. Robert King was imprisoned with Albert Woodfox for decades at Angola. The two of them and the late Herman Wallace were known as the Angola Three. Corrine Williams is with us from Middlesex, New Jersey. She's one of Albert Woodfox's longtime attorneys. And in New Orleans, we're joined by Albert Woodfox's brother, Michael Mabel. Michael, let's begin with you. Um, Deepest, deepest condolences. You were with your brother when he died yesterday. the hospital in New Orleans, and you're in the studio where um, well, in a studio, we interviewed you in New Orleans a few days after Albert was released from prison in 2016. You were again at your brother's side as you were receiving him when he was freed. Can you share your thoughts about Albert, about his life and his legacy?
3: Well, you know, his legacy was based upon, uh, you know. Change, And uh, no matter what uh, they needed to do and bring about change, you know, one of the things that we lived uh, for—as myself running, uh, visiting with him for 40 years, you know, he would teach me, and I would let him know things that was going out. Uh, So, you know, I told him way back when I was a juvenile that— at that point in time, when I was able to become a, a young man, that uh, I would visit with him and be with him uh, until, you know, to death do us part. And I made a, a solely vow, and I continues to honor that vow, that his legacy go on. So, uh, you know, his, his body is gone, but I want his voice to be spoken to the world and continues. And, uh, He's speaking through me now to let you know, let us know that uh, we we can't stop. You know, there's a lot of change need to be done, and uh, you know whatever we can do, and that's my plight is to con- con- is to continue to do what he would want done, and I promise him in that. So, you know, it was kind of hard, you know, but it only strengthened me, and uh, you know I just want to keep his legacy going, uh, you know, and I just want to. You know, like you said, like see like said, change is going to come, and uh, and anything I can do to honor that, to make that change, I want to be a part of it.
25: I want to turn to a clip of you sitting next to Albert, three days after his 69th birthday, uh, that moment when you came on Democracy Now, and uh, he was free. This is what you said then:
3: The only thing I felt, and only thing I can answer, is that I know he's a free man when I'm able to walk across the seal. Up the door with him, <laughs> and that reality set in when we was able to do that
25: we're showing the picture of the two of you together, uh, Michael. What was it like when he came out of prison? You were there to greet him
3: uh when he came out of prison uh i I noticed one of the things you know that uh uh he was free. he was free, and uh one of the things that he'd done before he died. And we talked about this many years ago, that he wa- he wanted his mind to be free. And, you know, that's one of the things they have in this book, you know, definitely stating. But, uh, you know, he was a free man, and he's free now. And, you know, I speak, you know, for him and through myself to the world. And I just want them to know that, uh, you know, that's one of the things we got, and that's one of the things we made vows to each other as brothers. that. uh you know we would never uh give up hope and i think that may have helped him and i'm glad as his brother played a big part of uh, can, uh allowing him to feel that that hope had came and that freedom was there you,
25: you know, know that day that we interviewed you and albert we also interviewed robert king in that same studio the three of you Robert King, who, when he got out of prison um, uh, about 15 years earlier, just traveled the country talking about who remained in prison. At the time, it was Herman Wallace and Albert Woodfox. Then Herman got out. when a judge threatened the warden, if he didn't release him that day, he would imprison the warden. And uh, Herman got out, only to die in the next days of liver cancer. Robert King, you never stopped. And this is what you said, as you sat also next to Albert Woodfox, when he was free.
26: Uh, when you hit bottom, there's no place but up to go, and Angola was the bottom. They even called it the bottom, and rightly so. And so we were trying to get out that bottom, and I remember one way to get out the bottom is to try to come up and and do some things to kind of offset the situation that uh, uh, you know the, the the sad situation that was going on in prison but it it was a comfort also to our our own mind I mean we were politicized we had uh understood you know that we were or why we were being uh, targeted and, and 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 punished, and this give, this give meaning to why we should struggle more so because you know it was an unjust reason, um, an unjust position we were in, and I'm... we had to struggle against this.
25: So that's Robert King in 2016. Um, Robert, you're joining us on the phone. Our condolences, our deepest condolences to you as well. Joining us from not far from where Albert succumbed yesterday to COVID. Um, your thoughts.
26: Hi, Amy. Um, you're
27: fun to me. Amy?
25: Yes. Hi, Robert. If you can share your thoughts today on your yes. on on Albert Woodfox, his life and his death. Yes.
26: Okay. Can you hear me?
25: We hear you perfectly.
26: Yes. Well, I was listening to Album. Oh, I've been listening to the program since it started and ah, uh, wow. Kind of hard to, you know, to, to to. Getting in my mind, it seemed as if Albert was in the in the room with me. But that those are my, my sentiments. But look, Albert, uh, my sentiments. Nah, you know, uh, Albert, he was my brother. Uh, he was my friend. Uh, uh, I'm gonna miss him. Uh, you know, together, uh, he faded best. Uh, uh, we saw some things that was amiss in prison and out of prison. And, uh, we decided that we could add our little pebbles to the pond. And so, um, um, just in short, he decided to do just that. He threw the pebbles in the pond knowing that they would create a ripple and knowing that they would eventually create, um, um tsunami effect. And uh he understood his his reasoning for uh, his existing and he lived out there. Um it's kinda hard uh, for me to believe. You no, know, but then again, you know, the pebbles that he's threw in upon the camera, the camera wave and uh, so this will carry him on into eternity. He won't be forgotten. Uh
25: he will certainly Again? not be forgotten. Um, I wanted to go back to 1972, when Albert and fellow imprisoned Black Panther Herman Wallace were falsely accused of stabbing the prison guard Brent Miller to death. Woodfox and Wallace always maintained their innocence. They said they were targeted for being Black Panthers. In fact. Miller's own widow, Tini Rogers, would later urge Louisiana to free Albert and Herman after she became convinced they were innocent. This is her in the 2010 documentary In the Land of the Free. I've been living this for 36 years. There's not
7: a year that goes by that I don't have to relive this. And it just keeps going and going. And then these men, I mean, if they did not. Do this, and I, I believe that they didn't. They have been living a nightmare for thirty-six years.
25: So that—that that was Teeny Rogers. Um, Corrine Williams was one of Albert Fox's longtime attorneys, but that doesn't really describe her relationship. His beloved attorney, Corrine Williams. Corrine, can you talk about the significance of why he was held, like Herman Wallace uh, and like Robert King? For so many years, again, uh, to be this dubious distinction of the longest-held prisoner in solitary confinement in this country for over 43 years.
17: Yes. Good morning, Amy. Um, and I, I can talk about that um, as you mentioned. He was convicted wrongfully in 1972. Along with Herman Wallace for the murder of this corrections officer, Officer Miller. Um, and at the time, just by happenstance, the Supreme Court had declared the death penalty unconstitutional in America. And so, you know, our position had been based on the evidence as we litigated the cases in Herman's case and, and Albert's case that prison officials really um, put them in the cells and you know, told them that they were going to throw away the key since they couldn't execute them. So it was intended to be a extra punitive um, sentence that was not, you know, given to them by a judge or through any lawful process, but by these prison officials at Angola Prison. Um, and for the next, you know, in Albert's case, 44 years, nearly 44 years, um, they were not only fighting— to clear their name and overturn their convictions, but also fighting against these unconstitutional conditions that they were in of 23 hours a day in isolation um, for basically the duration of their life sentences is what uh, the prison officials of Angola prison were seeking.
25: We only have 30 seconds, but if you can say how you finally got him out,
17: Oh, well, it certainly wasn't me alone. There was a legion of uh, lawyers, paralegals, experts, and then people all across the world and um, in communities near and far um, who supported these efforts of rolling boulders up mountains uh, to get Mr. Woodfox out in 2016. And, you know, since we're limited on time, I'll just say, Amy, I'm so glad that you played the clip of Albert talking about, you know, if a cause is noble, a man can carry the weight of the world on his shoulders.
20: Russell did all the winning because Russell understood team, Russell understood sacrifice, Russell understood what it took to win. With all that said, his greater impact was had off the court. He was one of our last. We are, unfortunately, now in a time, because of, you know, age, we don't have many remaining true civil rights icons. He was one of them. We lost John Lewis a couple years ago. We lose Bill Russell yesterday. And for all of that, Brew, for all the winning, for all the sacrifice, how was he treated? You mentioned how Boston fans treated him, and that was in the contemporary times, breaking into his home, vandalizing his home. But even far after the Russell era, you would have discussions of who's the greatest Celtic? Kuzi? Havlicek? Bird, well, what all three of those guys have in common is they're all white and they're all worse than Bill Russell was. How did the media treat him? Well, terribly. When he got the job as the head coach, he was asked in his opening press conference if he was going to be racist against white players. And you said it. How did our government treat him? Well, they put him under surveillance, as you mentioned, and called him, quote, an arrogant Negro, end quote, who's mean to white children.
28: This is GBH 89.7. I'm Arun Roth. As you've been hearing, Boston Celtics icon, Bill Russell, has died at the age of 88. Besides winning 11 championships for the Celtics as a player and as the first black head coach in all of North American sports, Russell was a devoted civil rights activist who refused to separate his politics from his play. That made him enemies, including, perhaps especially, here in Boston. With us to talk about Russell and his relationship with the city where he spent his career is Peter Roby, former athletic director at Northeastern University and the interim athletic director at Dartmouth. Peter, thanks for joining
18: us. Nice to be with you, Arun. Thank you so much.
28: So th- this phrase uh, I've heard, Bill Russell as the NBA's first black superstar, is, is, is that a fair assessment in a line?
18: Well, it's interesting that people would suggest that he was a superstar because that's not how he saw himself at all. He was such a team oriented player uh, that uh, it was always about team success. And so uh, he was the most uh, uh, most successful, the winningest player in the NBA. But to suggest that he was a superstar, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that he would like that moniker uh, applied to him.
28: Interesting. And, uh, you, you know, He would have been an icon no matter what, for his greatness and for being a black player at the time. But there was a lot more to 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 what he brought in in terms of when we're talking about his civil rights legacy, his civil rights stances. Could could, could you talk about that?
18: Well, for sure. I mean, he was uh, he was courageous, you know, at a time that it was really difficult maybe to be that way uh, because you weren't getting a lot of support. Uh, Most of the people that would be speaking outwardly about. Uh, Bill Russell would likely be more negative than positive because he did make people uncomfortable. Not only did he make people uncomfortable when he played uh, on the court because he was just so, so good at what he did. He was everywhere. Uh, But he also made people uncomfortable because he wasn't afraid to speak his mind. And I think the city of Boston, uh, despite their uh, protestations, uh, would recognize that they're better for it and certainly our country's better for it and the people that he advocated for are better for it for sure
28: and speaking of, of boston in particular because i've been hearing a lot about this t- today you know russell himself once referred to boston as a flea market of racism um there was that horrendously awful racist uh incident when, when his his home w- was vandalized during his time uh, with with his celtic his, his, home, his home here in massachusetts um can, can you talk a bit about that? I mean, Russell, in the context of, uh, of, of Boston and the racism here.
18: Yeah, I mean, you know, he put up with a lot. And I think one of the things that people uh, can't um, forget is much of what happens in black families is the, the um, stories that are told from generation to generation about the lived experience. And so for him growing up, in Louisiana, which was highly segregated, uh, his grandfather uh, being a, a black man and likely uh, descendants of slavery, if not a slave himself, a sharecropper probably for sure. Um, having uh, his father and his grandfather kind of uh, reliving and telling the stories about what it was like to be a black man in America, and then to see their their progeny um, get to the levels that he got both in college and in the professional ranks. And then what he stood for as a black man in America had to be a source of real pride for his family. But, you know, he, he had that kind of background and perspective. And so part of the reason I think that he was so uh, unwilling to do autographs, for example, was he thought it was uh, um, something that was disingenuous because people that were probably um, uh, willing to discriminate against him in any other part of their lives. Were asking him for an autograph and suggesting that he was their uh, he was their idol. So, uh, you know, there's lots that is, is weaved into this this experience that he lived lived for 88 years, and uh, you you have to keep all of that in perspective.
28: I read uh, one one piece today. It was written from somebody outside of Boston, obviously, saying in in essence that um, Boston didn't deserve Russell. That 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 uh, uh, the the people who who are now coming out here and and praising him were the same would be the same people that were calling him awful names back 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 in the day. Do, do you do you think that's fair, or do you, do you think that this the city has changed since the the worst kind of incidents that we we saw of, of that time? Do you, do you think? Bill Russell think, improved us.
18: I think it's changed. I do, I do think he's improved us. I think he challenged people to think differently. Um, how could you praise somebody and root for them on the court and think how great they are and then not want to uh, sell them uh, a car or, or uh, sell them a home in your neighborhood or give them a loan or whatever. So I hope that, I, I know that he challenged people in a way that I think made them better. It made the city better despite their uh, protests. You know, I, I think uh, we've still got w- uh, certainly a ways to go. There are still things that we are dealing with now in the city of Boston that that we have to continue to focus on. But I think we're all better for having had Bill Russell in our lives and having him be a, a role model. Um, he uh, he was a proud black man, and he wanted people to know that, and he wanted other black people that he uh, represented uh, to feel the same way, that they are worthy, that they um, should, should uh, sp- not be afraid to speak their mind and to, uh, to have an opinion and to have a set of values that you live by every day.
28: Give us a, a story that, that you feel like typifies uh, Bill Russell, the way that he, he contributed, the way that he gave back.
18: Well, obviously he was one of the, the, the icons of the day when Muhammad Ali decided to, uh, to stay out of the draft and go to jail instead of uh, going to fight. Uh, that was very unpopular at the time, but he and Jim Brown and other black uh, athletes and uh, civil rights folks rallied around uh, Muhammad Ali. Um, one other story that I uh, remember from reading some of the books that he wrote and talked about uh, with Red Auerbach uh, was when they were they were on an exhibition tour, of the Celtics in the in the South, uh, and the players couldn't um, stay at the hotel. Uh, the black players on the Celtics couldn't stay at the hotel where the white players were staying, and so he went to Red Auerbach and said, "You know, we're not we're not going to play, and um, we're 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 going to sit it out." Uh, And so he took a stand, uh, didn't care what it meant in terms of uh, what the Celtics might do, or what the NBA might do, or what the local folks might do. And and you can imagine what the other black players on the Celtics at the time thought uh, about Russell as a leader, that he was willing to step out there as the ultimate leader of the Celtics and take that stand and say, this is unacceptable. And if we're not going to protest this. If the Celtics aren't going to take a stand, uh, then the black players aren't going to play.
28: Peter, it's been great speaking with you about this about this great man and getting some more perspective on him. Thank you so much.
18: Well, thanks for having me, Arun. And uh, it's, it's worthy of our attention for sure.
28: Definitely. That's Peter Roby, former athletic director at Northeastern University. He's now leading school athletics at Dartmouth. This is GBH's
21: All Things Considered. Context of white supremacy. Nichelle Nichols, Albert Woodfox, Bill Russell, all transitioned this week, all victims of white supremacy, all being recognized for their efforts to counter. Racism, White Supremacy, The Cows, today's date Saturday, August 6, 2022, so I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call-in, dial-in if you have thoughts, suggestions, questions. Uh, the number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. The number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate not for spectators let us know if you have thoughts observations to share Uh, let's see before we get to the folks who called in notes updates reports to share. Uh, First, we are listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. 13 years plus on the air. Hit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, you can also uh, invest via Venmo, Cash App, uh, PayPal. All the links are right there on the blog. Uh, cash App, the address is cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Enormous gratitude to all of the investors uh, who have supported the cows 13 plus years. Hopefully we have provided accurate constructive consistent information on what white supremacy racism is how it works what it means to be white and things non-white people can and should be doing to solve this problem immediately also want to give gratitude thanks to uh, folks who have nabbed items from my wish list at amazon.com it is under Gus T. Renegade Uh, 13 years folks have nabbed an item or three uh, hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy man I've talked about uh, my hammock all summer long that I got from my wish list in the springtime and I mean hey I've talked about all of the joy that I've had from my hammock and it has been the coldest summer ever and I have still got lots of hammock time even today How in the world did I forget my racism story with my hammock? Now, I will say, normally, the hammock has been very similar to uh, my MacBook Pro. You don't say, now that has got to be goofy. MacBook Pros, uh, especially I've had 15 inches. I mean, you're talking thousands of dollars uh, for a MacBook Pro. A hammock is like $25 U.S.? Maybe 40 if you want to really get a really spiffy one. If we're talking about a portable one, 40 bucks, less than $50. They're similar in that social cachet from whites. I remember when I got my MacBook Pro personally and being out in public coffee shop or whatever, and wifey was like, oh, wow, MacBook Pro. You see that? Coon's got a MacBook Pro. Wow. I remember I think we were out someplace publicly when Steve Jobs passed away and I'm like, oh my goodness did you see that Steve Jobs passed and I was looking around like is he who is he it's like oh he sees you've got an apple so he's like what in the world like I'm not in the family I'm not going to the wake I'm not sending them any sweet potato pie like I suspect these are racist poor Steve Jobs anyway hammock has the same effect who would have thought? I've had so many times where I've been out at the beach, lake, wherever white people, especially here at Richmond Beach, my goodness, where I'd be in my hammock and they walk like, wow, that is a great idea. Wow. Have to get my hammock. Wow. So, again, we're talking something you can get, you know, Target, Amazon, 30 bucks. Anyway, so in the midst of our Minor heat waves, so called, in Seattle. This actually happened last week. I'm at Green Lake. I love Green Lake. The many years that I've been in Seattle, if I had to pick like three places, like where are your three places that you absolutely love. Green Lake would definitely be one of those three I love Green Lake I've been there so many times I've been there like easily hundreds of times and I still love going there I was there today to nap in my hammock and I have excellent vegan pizza so I'm there last week hiding out from the heat this is one of the days when it was like 95 93 something like that which is unusual here for like any time. so I go to Green Lake we didn't have a program this day but we had a program the following day so I'm like, I'll prep a little bit rest up, ready for the broadcast the next day Uh, I'd been napping, I'd been in my hammock uh, at this point for we'll say an hour there was a gang of whites approximately we'll say 25 yards 25 meters away from where I'm set up with my hammock so you can kind of hear them but I mean we're not super close you can definitely see them but we're not super close maybe 20 yards 20 meters maybe six of them in their group even split gals and guys so they've been there we you know I've seen where their party is their group is they've seen where I am like I said for at least an hour or so maybe more I get out of my hammock briefly. I brought snacks. I intended to be there for a while so that I could read and just stay away from the heat at the lake. It's so much cooler. So I'm like, hey, I can hang out for the afternoon at the lake. It's approximately 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, I had brought organic banana. They talked about that, you know you don't have pharmacies and what have you eating correctly so you don't have to have all that to control your blood sugar and hypertension and diabetes and all the rest of it so I didn't bring Funyuns, right I didn't bring Lay's potato chips Cheetos, all the rest of it I brought organic, I love plums I've eaten so many plums this summer I brought organic plum organic bananas, I get up, I eat my banana I go to toss the peel in the trash so literally the trash can is less than 10 yards very close, the trash can is way closer than they are from where my tent, or excuse me hammock setup is so I walk from the hammock, bang throw the banana peel in the trash come back to my tent now, just for added context in my hammock, I have my laptop. I said I've been working. My Apple, previously mentioned, I have my MacBook, uh, organic plum, and I'm coming back to reach. I say it's 95 degrees. I'm coming back to hydrate. So I go to grab my strawberry hibiscus sparkling water. Refreshing also organic. So I go to take a sip and I hear dude that's not your shit. I put down my strawberry hibiscus sparkling water. I turn said party of six white woman in front. Now, I guess also for context, I have on my, uh, I guess, like Terminator sunglasses. So I turn around. I don't say anything. I just turn around and look. She can't see my eyes because I have my sunglasses on. So we hold, well, I can't say we hold eye contact. So we're just holding, looking in direction. She says, oh, wait. Ah. see there was this guy he looked really sketchy and he was walking around everywhere and just before we left we saw Bill Cosby on TV I'm so sorry I'm so sorry Gus T thought he was going to escape the heat and racism at Green Lake wrong They left within about 15, 20 minutes. Now, I sat down, grabbed my strawberry hibiscus sparkling water again. I even thought about that. Like, dang, I didn't come back and like rifle through and start grabbing things quickly so that I could abscond. I didn't snatch the MacBook Pro. I snatched the already open, half-consumed strawberry hibiscus sparkling water do people even do that? do they see half consumed beverages oh they didn't finish off their soda pop I will get the rest of this juicy juice (laughs) and leave the the macbook and everything else people do that? my backpack was there too I forgot anyway after I processed and sat for a moment I said man I didn't say anything. I would do that again. If she had said anything, it continued, you did take that, you're the sketchy dude, you and Bill Cosby. Same thing I did when the fella accused me of jimming into my own mailbox, call the police. Maybe I would have even broke out my cell phone and I would have also called the police we will see whose police officer gets here first to file a report now having had extra time to think about it because I forgot to share that one last week oh yeah I would do the exact same thing I would not open my mouth to say a word if she had escalated and not recognized whoops I accused the wrong nigger. call the police and there's nothing else to say I whip out my phone and I call the police Maybe I would think about moving if the rest of her group had escalated because it was a lot of them, so they could have been armed and six of them, one of me. Eh, maybe I move, maybe not, but I'd probably do the same thing over again. Man, oh man, life and times on the, I never say Seattle for all the people, because we've had a number of people over the past, like two years or so, since I discovered some of the beaches uh, in Seattle and stopped being a lame, i think like, man, stand brag. all these beaches in Seattle, and it's so expensive to live up there. You act like everybody can just come to Seattle. I've never said move to Seattle. That'll be the best thing. That's how we'll end racism. Everybody move to Seattle. I never said that. I have only said this is the best plantation I don't even call it a city never said you will escape racism not even at my beloved Green Lake or Richmond Beach or Alki Beach or Golden Gardens or anywhere else here that I love dearly problem we are trying to solve next Uh, let's see I do love my hammock though. Wow. Uh, let's see. I've also forgot last week uh, they added to the dictionary. They made a big to do about it. I actually included Or I guess I should take that back. I only neglected to verbally mention this, but I included the audio report and I actually had it written in the description. You can go back and look. I did not forget. I just didn't verbalize it on the program they did all that tackiness they made a big celebration and had like confetti and what have you like, oh we're going to recognize what the Nigra has contributed to the English language and we will add words like finna f-i-n-n-a finna like I'm finna go upside your head and woke Gus T did not think that was anything to celebrate I thought that was tacky at best and they'll do this like every 50 years like they did Ebonics before I played that song last week shout the big L to as the preface to go into that report talking about that I would have been maybe excited if they had added gutter sex unjust networking racially restricted region I would have been excited if they had added those terms to the dictionary with accurate counter-racist definitions. That's not what they did. We got finna. I'm finna go crazy. Let's see. Listener wrote in until justice at gmail.com. The email until justice at gmail.com listener wrote in today uh almost minutes before we went live uh hi gus and callers a disturbing occurrence happened to my daughter earlier today which i think is important to share she was sitting outside relaxing and taking in the sunshine lucky early afternoon after a very hectic week a suspected racist female came and sat near her the area she lives in is like oh I thought she was going to say she's in Seattle like what what's going on here okay the area she lives in is like Seattle uh, that it is middle class so mainly white the woman looked as though she had just had her hair done and was well dressed she started speaking to my daughter who politely answered her questions as she didn't have any concern at first The woman started telling my daughter her personal information and problems she was having with her boyfriend in the way white people use black people as counselors, mammies, even those they've never met before. Pause this. At least what I don't know where the rest of it goes, but at least right there, delectable negro there's a specific passage that talks about just the consumption of our time and emotions and we talked about it in this exact concept total stranger and i need to come and oh my husband wants to have a three-way and he wants to be like bill cosby but he doesn't know how what do you think And i don't even know you back up talk about this in the workplace context too all the time but all of that is delectable negro continuing Uh, the white woman told my daughter that her boyfriend is allegedly black Jesus Christ although I'm not sure if this is true my daughter got the impression that the woman was drunk worst combination in the known unit it could be she was under the influence of fill in the blank The woman claimed she was a hairdresser in the area which my daughter initially believed. However, she began to doubt this as the conversation went on. A man walked by who the woman seemed to know. They spoke and the woman told him that she was sitting outside as a client had failed to turn up. My daughter suspects she was not talking about a hairdressing appointment. The man left. She then told my daughter that she is very sweet and that She would like to adopt her, although her mother might not like that. My daughter said she started to get weird vibes at that point, but carried on the conversation as if everything was okay. She told the woman she was a bit too old to be adopted. The woman asked my daughter her age and she told her. She expressed surprise as she thought my daughter was a lot younger. My daughter does look a lot younger than she actually is. She said her alleged black boyfriend always says black doesn't crack. Doesn't get any better than tacky. Continuing, my daughter also got up to leave. The woman said, I was thinking of inviting you for a drink, which my daughter declined my daughter felt even more suspicious at that point given the woman had just informed her that she looked underage my daughter said she got Giseline maxwell vibes from the woman so she declined the invitation and even though she didn't feel physically threatened decided to get away from the woman i'll just pause right there a plus to the attempted parents i just said that yesterday that is the hardest job in the world that is like legitimate like I don't want to hear any lip from gusty about what I haven't read or what I haven't done I am parenting you no count worthless Negro from Virginia don't have any offspring you have no idea what it's like to be an attempted parent true kudos we say all the time make sure you talk to your attempted or your offspring children Talk to them about white supremacy, racism, and talk to them honestly about sexual abuse, child rape, your child. Knowing that I don't know what part of the world you're in, if you're in New York, hey, that's been in the news a lot. So maybe <laughs> maybe you didn't even have to initiate that conversation, depending on, you know, how savvy your child is or what have you. But Bravo, if you have talked with your child about Jocelyn Maxwell, because they were targeting children talked about the Boy Scouts this week talked about the Catholic Church all of that Jerry Sandusky lots of different ways mandatory so that they can be prepared an incident like this happens what Gavin DeBecker gift of fear when you get those vibes you get that for a reason at minimum there are serious questions that need to be answered at minimum if not outright yikes I'm getting out of here. This chick is not safe. Something is wrong with all of this. Getting out of here. Calling mom on the way. Bravo for making sure your child knows about uh, Giseline Maxwell and rampant sexual and particularly of black children, non-white children all over the world. continuing uh my daughter also got up the lead uh da, 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 da. oh for the drink i'll uh, see da, 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 da. Mm. Uh, okay that's the end. Well, I it at all. yeah man oh man i would be wow bravo i would feel great for for my daughter i guess if anything i would ask them if they were going to do the situation over same way i did you know with the hammock situation if they would do anything differently i would want them to feel a sense of danger even quicker and especially with white people we talked about this in the context of Peyton Gendron out in public how many people can honestly say they were out in public and a random individual classified as white you've never talked to seen before they stopped you and gave you constructive information even you were lost and they were just you know, willing to be courteous and help you find your destination they wanted to stop and give you information on how you could chop your mortgage in half and pay it off in half the time they wanted to share information on how you could double your frequent flyer miles anything that doesn't happen for me I'm just my counter-racist suggestion particularly given the environment that we're in now the default is on I suspect you are up to no good there's no reason for me to think that a random even a non-white stranger come up, interrupt my afternoon interrupt my walk, whatever it is to strike up a conversation especially they're just any, any of that, any, any of this. I just want to come up and start talking to you about my life and problems and all of this. I'm good. I'm not interested in talk. You can even get up and move yourself. That's what I would remember that we talked about that with Buffalo. Grady Lewis kept mentioning that Peyton Gendron came up. He said they talked for two hours. gave him his benefit card and everything go get yourself a snack all that I think his keys might have been attached we talked about that and this one there's somebody else there too like we have no idea is this a kidnapping scheme is this a drift I don't even want to know all of this (sighs) terrorism get away and this is sort of thing making sure that you're talking to your children so that they can recognize this evade This sort of thing is common, stealing black children and has been for years. Geez, many reasons why I do not have children. You can add that to the lengthy, lengthy list of reasons why. Uh, If we have any attempted parents, uh, if you have any suggestions, how you, you know, think or would encourage parents to talk to their children about these sort of events to keep them safe. Let us know. What have you told your children, boys and girls, to stay safe for these types of situations? Let us know. This is the sort of thing, before conception happens, there are so many things to talk about. This is another one. can't make it easy throw away children make it easy for them whatever scheme that they had in mind even at minimum let's go get a drink do what do what (sighs) playing around with sex the joke is on the offspring last few things and then we'll get to some of the folks who dialed in have commentary to share uh, let's see, number one, uh, now, we just read in the book club, not that long ago, Ernest T- Tidyman's Shaft 50-year anniversary was last year, and just that quick-mast 50-year anniversary of Superfly. Race soldiers, skilled, see something that works, we will just pummel the Negros with all of this nonsense, They, the Negro classic black pimp and drug pusher. Mm. Spectacular indeed. I love Curtis Mayfield. All of that notwithstanding about Superfly, I love Curtis Mayfield. That is like how the cows was birthed listening to Curtis Mayfield summer of 2007. I mean, in fact, you can listen to the book club when Sundown Towns, James Lowen, the first session what's playing in the background at the beginning other side of town Curtis Mayfield been with us from day one but I mean that notwithstanding they make these amazing soundtracks and use all of that black musical genius and then apply it to trash and that's been the pattern for years all of the Negro class think about everything that they said New Jack City Friday Belly all of the Negro classic films that you just gotta see why are they all about drugs, narcotics all of them that's all Negro classic films can be about and Black Panther the zenith of Negro experience Uh, let's see The, and the sequencing there was deliberate. That right there is the system of white supremacy, where you can have Negroes in this drug pushing film in the middle of an era where you have lots of black people attempting to work against racism, white supremacy, and you get this drug pusher image, which is even there to some degree in Shaft. We talked about that creation of white people. Uh, and then, all these years later, in New Mexico they said they're making a monument to honor Walter White aka Heisenberg Nazi scientist and Jesse Pinkman for their role in Breaking Bad I haven't seen the statue I said so what is the statue going to be the part in Breaking Bad where they blow up the old folks home Oh wait wait it's going to be Jesse Pinkman and Walter White in their hazmat suits as they're making crystal meth that's what the statue of honor is going to be These guys are killers <laughs> that's all they do make drugs and kill people and they will have a statue to honor them I said matter of fact the insanity of white supremacy racism we talked about that program in depth I said that right there white supremacy culture, to have a show like that that is all about white supremacy and nar- narcotics, crystal meth that started in 2008 and now, it's, oh my goodness, even before COVID, this man, life expectancy has dropped from all of the opioids and the drug crisis and everything and to have that to be one of the crowning entertainment experiences of the last 20 years according to many, many white people they got a statue in New Mexico mostly killing non-white people in the series that we talked about in depth and making narcotics in fact we talked about that series in depth so much in 2013 that series was going off the air a decade ago it was going off the air at the beginning of autumn 2013 Halloween that year, candy, they gave out treats, put that in quotes, that looked like the crystal meth from Breaking Bad. That's candy for children? I segued from that. I used Curtis Mayfield. I played Stone Junkie. That is not on the Superman, Superfly uh, soundtrack. Doesn't matter. It was still appropriate. Then I came back to the soundtrack for Pusher Man to segue to the uh, report. Chicago, they don't have pharmacies. So did you see I can not brag but hey, you know, call attention to what you did. Curtis Mayfield, born in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then to play Pusher Man for the segment where they're talking about now in the south side of Chicago where the Negras are warehoused. They don't have pharmacies. Call it a pharmacy desert. Eh. Recreational cannabis is legal in Illinois. I said, man, so do they have cannabis dispensaries in Southside Chicago but no pharmacies? That's just a question. I don't know. I haven't been to Chicago in a while, but I mean, are you serious? Did not forget you, Pamela Evans. Here, I would... My God cannot believe it i would love to hear what do you think about this pamela evans harris are you serious you telling me they don't have a cvs where the Negroes live but do they have cannabis dispensaries that are not owned by black people windy city indeed barack obama oprah winfrey rolling over in their graves let's see uh last thing I'll get in uh, the segment they mentioned uh, just the name of the report they were talking about Bill Russell uh, they said they mentioned the report Boston didn't deserve Bill Russell that was written by black journalist Rob Parker I shared that report at the beginning of the week uh, I thought it was interesting that that bothered like what do you mean, what do you mean? I agree totally uh, the way Bill Russell was treated during his career uh, the only other thing I'll say metaphors talked about that for years on the cows not just the compensatory call in, but on the cows period, I request that we not use metaphors said consistently racists, individuals classified as white. They are skillful with the use of words. No better illustration. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, for all of his information on Cointel Pro that we discussed this past week, guest on the program, Gusty asked him. What is a black radical? Specifically, what does a black radical do that no one else does? Because he uses that term in his book regularly, not in quotes either, his term. Oh my goodness, we go around and around and around and around and can't get an explanation. Man, oh man, listen to Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly give us his explanation,
11: definition for black radical. I didn't say this either. At the time King is assassinated, he's calling the United States, uh, you know, God's, uh, you know, it's like we're acting like we're God's military mission on planet Earth. And we need to get the hell out of Vietnam. And we need to look at America and we need to fix America. And see, that's that's radical. And someone who's not radical, like liberals, what do liberals want to do? They want to tinker with the system. Here's another way. Did you give you an image to uh, to explain this? Um, you have an automobile, your personal car, and the water pump breaks, right? So your car, you can't drive your car without a water pump. So what do you do? Do you go out and buy a bus? Do you go out and buy a tank? Because, you know, your car doesn't drive, but a bus drives, a tank drives. A radical would do something radical. So if you say the car, the automobile symbolizes capitalism and the bus symbolizes socialism and the tank symbolizes fascism, a radical, Martin Luther King or any other radical, black or white, would say capitalism isn't working. We need a new system. But what would a liberal say? A liberal would say, well, keep the car and get a new water pump. Oh,
0: God!
21: give us strength indeed Shout to sydney portier uh, but i mean that right there no metaphors ever race soldiers they do that sort of thing deliberately with water what <laughs> we started out trying to get a definition for black radicals now we're talking about tanks and water pumps like oh my lord lord give us strength uh victims we get exposed to that You end up getting confused and everything else and then we end up doing the same thing and we are still learning. Sometimes we do not have the logic to articulate our views. So we end up, you know, it's like a water pump or the bus or a skateboard. All of that confusion. We need logic. Counter racist science is about precision, being exact, specifics. If you need more time to formulate your words, that is always applauded and allowed. I will give reminders about the metaphors. The number again, 720716 seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate again not for spectators if we have any attempted parents uh... who have discussed that sort of situation some stranger coming out to uh... perhaps a cost kidnap uh... your child could be something sexual who knows uh, have you all discussed how to deal with that sort of situation with your child? Any tips on parents talking to their children about that sort of situation? That would definitely be appreciated. Again, no spectating from parents. And then if any of the folks, you uh, have older folks, uh, if you were here, because I was not alive at that time. I am a fogey, but not quite that old. Uh, that, yeah, if we have folks who were here when Superfly actually was released, Uh, and you know can kind of speak to what you think at the 50 year anniversary feel free as well I know I think we even have Mr. Fuller saying specifically that is not one of the films that he recommends or Shaft or Belly or New Jack City just go right down the list all of the uh, what is it Uh, Negro trauma narcotic dramas I'm good on all of those like forever I'm sure I missed 8 or 12. Probably got some international ones that are about to say. uh, uh, Children of God. one down in Brazil that's about the same thing. I'm good on all of those for life. Even got Gus in Breaking Bad. Gus, what is he? He sells fried chicken and drugs. That's the black man. Giancarlo Esposito, uh, black male. That's what he does in Breaking Bad. Sell drugs and fried chicken best it's going to be superfly breaking bad new jack city you can be pookie chris rock the great uh let's see uh folks who dialed in if you have commentary to share star six one uh we'll nab folks uh let's see uh retired firefighter with us we'll nab other folks uh, as we go down the line here
27: greetings everyone I uh would just uh first start off by uh reporting the beginning part of uh today's program uh was definitely necessary uh for non-white people to uh to cease on uh, arguing and fussing uh with each other uh name calling uh that sort of thing uh and i have uh known that some of these programs that last two hours spend their time solely on other non-white people in these programs some of these programs and uh the whole idea and it's, it's full of name calling. And, and although it is is not constructive to name call anybody, no white person gets name called at all. The subject matter of a white supremacist or white or white people's participation in the global system of white supremacy is not even talked about. And uh so I would uh suggest that uh, non-white people uh, cease and desist on uh, such means of what I have to think is some form of entertainment, actually, Uh, not a constructive means. Uh, I don't want to forget 77 years ago, August 6, 1945, people who I suspect are white supremacists dropped a terrible device called an atomic bomb on a city on this planet and it immediately destroyed over 80,000 people that are considered to be non-white just from that blast alone. Ultimately, over over the months and years afterwards, Somewhere in vicinity of 30,000 to 80,000 other people have died from that one particular bombing, only to have two days later the same thing to happen. The first place was a place by the name of Hiroshima. The second place was a place called Nagasaki. Nagasaki both in the area that is called Japan. Uh, something to be thought of that someone would have that type of mentality that that would be used against other people on this planet. Uh, I am old enough, definitely old enough to... Uh, it was right around those times when uh, all of those movies that were called by some black exploitation uh, movies. Of course, in, in, in any of my social circles, being that I was a teenager, that term was not you, used at all. It was just going to see a movie. Uh, as a teenager... I was not aware of the of the uh, uh, damage psychological damage from going to view something of that nature. Uh, I would say me amongst millions of non-white people were confused to the standpoint that primarily a significant number of us just wanted to feel good about something so the movies were shrewdly designed in that manner in that manner uh to make someone who is involved in something that is not constructive uh at the same time be something that's called a hero all of the male characters who were subjects, well, even the female characters that were subjects were considered to be attractive or slash handsome, and that played a part. That played a part in uh, the uh, you know movies are designed to use as tools to influence people. So they made sure that the person would be considered to be if it was male handsome, female. Uh, uh, quote-unquote beautiful or quote-unquote sexy, that sort of thing. Uh, I can remember even uh, J- Jim Brown uh, was uh, accoladed as being the first black male to be in a sex scene with a white woman on TV. I mean, excuse me, on the, on the movie screen. But anyway, uh, what what was the question you, you were asking about uh, with uh, uh, sharing or, or teaching with your child? What was the question again?
21: We had a mom. She wrote in uh, that her daughter was accosted by this white woman out in public. Uh, and just for folks, if they heard what she wrote, uh, just in terms of what you might have shared with your children uh, about if they're out in public and some white stranger, or I guess stranger period, but especially a white stranger uh, comes up and starts talking to them uh, to try to keep them safe. Uh, What have people shared, especially if they
27: they heard the report? Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Well, uh, I would assume if the the, uh, child was uh, out on their own Uh, the parent understood that, that he or she is old enough to be on their own. So therefore the subject matter can be straightforward and to the point on, uh, that would basically warn them against such possibilities, uh, speak directly to it, whatever terms, uh, that you can think of that would, uh raise their attention. Now, I have heard from experts to state, if someone comes up on you, even if they are armed, you do not get into that vehicle. If they're going to kill you, they're going to kill you running away. But if you you get in that vehicle, you more than likely would, would not live through the process. You know, somebody says, you know, put a gun on you and say, you know, you better get in this car. That sort of thing. Make noise. Take off running, and whatnot. That, that's one of the few times where it is suggestible for you to take off running. If some, if, if from a standpoint of a quote-unquote kidnapping, because more than likely you're going to end up being murdered if you get inside that vehicle or come inside the house of where that person is at, whatever that situation. But. Back to the subject matter. Speak directly to that that person. You know, that that sounds like somebody like a teenager, and uh, especially nowadays, one one thing about the negative stuff that is on television and in the movies, and, and matter of fact, you can hold it right in your hand. Uh, that uh, there is almost no secrets that that even the the, the little boys that we have in the DSS DCS program, uh, uh, has is close to porn porn, pornography is right at the tip of their hands. So there's almost nothing that's concealed to them. So utilize that by speaking in direct terms to your child. Uh, and, uh, now if you have to break down some terms to make it simple, for a, uh, simpler for a younger child then so be it. But, but don't, don't feel like there's no subject that they're not quote unquote ready for it yet type of thing. And, uh, that's, how, that's all I have to say. Thank you.
21: Much obliged. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Very important. The directness, uh not being mealy mouthed We talk about pussyfooting and all that. Just be direct, especially if they're old enough to be outside by themselves. We heard the report, the young lady, uh she was uh assaulted, uh Natasha Fuller, black female. She was out and then this white man drives up behind her and starts yelling at her and knocks her down. She cuts her head and everything. Uh, that was, a, And she was talking so soft. She said she's been traumatized and is trying to deal with all of this. Uh, she, I thought it was important not blaming the victim or anything, but just this is something that I've talked about. When you're out in public, I think it's so important to not have earbuds, headphones, because she said she had her earbuds in. <clears throat> you want to be able to hear what's happening around you. Uh, if you absolutely gotta like you you got them in you're on the phone or you know whatever you're listening to the cows you gotta have them in uh maybe only wear one, certainly if you're out in public, I would strongly discourage any of those noise canceling uh headphones uh the headphones that totally like encompass your ear, even the earbuds, I would only wear one I would not have two in you want to be able to hear what's happening around you, even in the book club, Joey, he yelled at one of the black males, nigger, and they heard him, and they were able to turn around in time, to see the knife, and they moved, saved their life, if they hadn't heard him, had those earbuds in, might have been killed, so that's just one I would say in general, so that you can hear, but absolutely, talk to them direct, no pussyfooting, trying to make sure to save their life, and sometimes children, their brains are still developing, so you have to repeat things uh, and then really make sure that you're getting them to focus and take this serious could kill or could save your life uh let's see uh also wanted to make sure I got in as well that segment on sleep since we're talking about children <clears throat> that segment from the b b c where they talked about the difference because children's brains are still developing, where they said not getting nine hours of sleep. They saw differences in children's brain development. That is so important, getting adequate. And they even said going to bed early. I was nauseous. I saw in Atlanta for black people, they were all giddy about midnight basketball. it's almost 2025 are you serious are you serious this is what we need to keep black people safe midnight basketball in 2025 not midnight you know we're gonna figure out a space program any STEM program anything constructive lie I mean it's you're in Atlanta so you got all kinds of resources it could be an in. I mean if we're into basketball hey why not get some sort of internship program with the Atlanta Hawks community outreach beyond all of that why does it have to be at midnight like I'm thinking so do the people that you are trying to attract to midnight basketball do they not have a place to sleep because then The problem, in my view, should not be solved with midnight basketball. Let's get you a place where you can be in bed at midnight. You can be sleep, so you can be productive for your day. I do not understand that at all, but the point being, for children especially, and you want to set up quality sleep habits as best you can, early in life you do not want to start and they said turning off the television what does that moron Gus T say all the time part of long dialogue before we even get to the bedroom breastfeeding giseline maxwell jerry sandusky is so many things to talk about vegan diet no tv in the house they said that in the segment get away from those screens even said do some meditation I almost thought they were going to say get some yoga in like what what is going on what what can add in get no soda and sugar and all that nonsense out of your diet get some exercise heck yeah but all of that getting adequate rest especially for young children for black children so important for brain health and as i said developing great sleep habits the system of white supremacy is all about making sure that black people do not get adequate rest get more sleep i'm so midnight does anybody else need midnight basketball for safety like that's going to help them solve problems midnight basketball I could vomit. Uh, let's see, Bay Area mom, other folks uh, with a hand up uh, should be with us, star six one, not for spectators.
14: Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, thank you. to you and everybody. Uh, do, 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 do. Okay, so if I was one of, because I have two children so, um, with my daughter, I had her in self defense. I, would, I, would, I, I wouldn't let them do, do too much without me. Like, I took them to my first school, back and forth to school until like ten grade. So, I would keep them with me. And when they weren't with me, um, they were with their dad. So, I just kept them with me. Um, A lot of times And then they have their self-defense And then I don't really like them talking to people They don't know so they're not going to Talk to you For too long They might answer questions out of courtesy But hopefully They wouldn't talk to you for too long And they could use some of their self-defense If they felt like you were going to Try and grab them Uh, So Hopefully that would have worked um I guess so I, I I don't recall having any issues with the children um that I know of because they'll use that self-defense even my daughter should that's her martial arts they use so she'll take a yeah so mm. so yeah that martial arts maybe self-defense is better than um midnight basketball I don't know I could be um spewing birds um, oh yeah, not getting enough sleep um that's why I didn't like working at night because I think I needed to be sleep that time of night versus working, and it did it does bother you. Um, if you don't get quality sleep, and nine hours sounds great, especially for children, they really do need to go to bed early and not all that TV. Um, with me, I couldn't watch TV, so for me, I've seen. I, I don't remember. So I guess Superfly came out when I was a little uh, uh, kid. I guess so. I don't. I don't know, but I know that set the atmosphere for us coming up in that era. That was what we came up to either wanted to be like a lot of us, all that stuff, all those different kind of um, films and um, the kind of guys we were attracted to. Those, you know, Nichols, those, um, those hustling, um, uh, fast talking, um, kidding type of guys who were attracted to them as well. We came up in that era and they were the ones that were glamorized. So those kind of guys were the celebrities Um, even in our neighborhoods. That's what was um, popular, not the the doctors or working class citizens. They were later. You get on those after the guys mistreat you or you're in jail or somebody's dead or something. So that just set it up for us, those kind of um, programs set it up for us to, you know, (laughs) so 50-year-later celebration. I'm sure our era will celebrate it, but it didn't benefit us at all. It just really made us um, mimic all that stuff that we saw on the screen. Um, what else? Oh, uh the lack of pharmacies. Um was it South Chicago? So uh oh Chicago if that's the place. Um and they do have a um dispensary there. I think they made marijuana legal maybe a couple of years ago. So um, it, it's too bad because even here, um, but I'll even say in Oakland, there's a lot of senior um, units and they've removed the uh, pharmacies like Walgreens. It's right across the street from the senior citizen um, apartment complex, rather large. And they closed it down. They allowed the people to come in and out, stealing, and let that be the reason to why they were closed it down because of the stilling, but they're, them closer to the freeway so I think it's designed to make sure certain people don't get adequate pharmaceuticals or um, can't have access to them and even sometimes because there's not a lot of stores, walgreens and some of the pharmacies have a little minimart in there so you can even pick up some little things to eat on and if that's not available, they, they may have corner stores around, but they're like smoke shops and just junk food grab. So it, it's just too bad. Um, I hope they're able to um, do something or get something going there. Um, and then everywhere else, they're removing the pharmacies and replacing them with just things that don't need. Thank you for taking my call. I'll mute my line
21: dispensaries dispensaries that's what we need apparently much obliged uh bay area mom i think that's great like i think uh i don't know if that is default but that would be my suggestion in the system of white supremacy especially for children maybe even for everybody but especially for children no talking to strangers and particularly white strangers like no way like get away immediately like it's nothing to talk about check in nothing out of here I think that's a great code to take Uh, as she said just it's not going to be a whole lot of chatting like it might be a quick answer question just to be polite and even that like I feel like for children like hey I'm a child I am still learning all kinds of things. Multiplication is, you know, got me locked up right now. So, I mean, I am not the person that you need to be asking for information about anything. I'm good. You play around with sex. The joke is on the offspring. Cannot be said enough. And she was talking about sleep. She said uh, now they were talking about children in that report. She said she, when she worked the evening shift, graveyard shift as they call it why do they, why do they call it the graveyard shift hmm maybe maybe working that shift gets you closer moves you closer to the graveyard hmm, hmm. metaphors real talk they do have studies where they have said people who work the so called graveyard shift have all kinds of health problems in fact I think I've played one of those on the compensatory call, in before it might take me some some time to dig back through the years, but they have research uh, that suggests that that's true. And beyond all of that, they did mention in the segment that we heard today talking about children, you do not want to disrupt their schedule, whatever their you know academic routine is. Bay Area mom talked about that all the time with the children. Don't want to have all these. Oh, today we're going to do this, and then move everything around tomorrow, and then we'll switch it all Everything. thing. Try not to move their schedule around. Try not to disrupt their circadian rhythm. Our bodies generally like to go to bed when the sun goes down. Wake up when the sun goes up. That's why working at night so that now you're going to be sleeping in the daytime generally is not good for your health especially having to do that for a long period of time that's exactly what bay area mom said with children you want to start them out well that's why you sit getting them to bed earlier so that they're not up really really late and then not getting lots of sleep i know i've been i felt like i've been chronically fatigued like my entire existence like i was so envious seems minimal here in Seattle recent like sometime within the last decade or so, maybe a little more than a decade, but not it hadn't been this has not been like a forever thing, but they switched it so that students could begin their academic day at like ten AM Man, if I had been in an academic environment like kindergarten, high school, middle school, whatever where the academic day begins at 10 a.m., I would be a Rhodes Scholar. Like, that is how much, like, an impact I think it would have had. Just rest is so important. Like, you cannot, they said, like, that is so important to brain health and not getting adequate rest early can have long-term detrimental health effects on your brain development so get and I mean really promote get your to heck with midnight basketball (laughs) man like I agree like it seems like there's so many things that could be promoted that would be way better than midnight basketball but if it hey if it is we need midnight basketball because you all don't have a place to sleep Why not invest and we can get really comfortable sleeping areas so we can have midnight rest area. Everybody can go to bed or back 10 p.m. earlier. Why not that? Maybe I'm being ignorant. Uh, Make a quick request as well. The late Bill Russell passed away. Now we do have a rule against having non-white guests on the program and against reading books by authors after they have died. Non-white authors. Okay. Oh, mentioned Pamela Evans Harris before. Uh, this one's happened a few times. Dr. Layla Africa. I flipped through. Bill Russell's second win. Now I might have missed the chapter. Where he calls. Wilt Chamberlain a coon. And you know whatever else. goes, Does some other name calling. Or whatever else. Some things that would make us want to wretch. What I saw was a lot of black self-respect and or him talking about being a victim of racism, he and or his relatives. I think we should read Bill Russell's Second Wind, just because I think I would not have read this book if he had not just passed away. Probably a lot of others uh, of us as well. And it's talking directly about white supremacy, racism, and he's a tail pro-victim many reasons and it's not too long so we'll be able to finish it quickly all of that said uh if anybody can nab a pdf and or ebook copy that would be super awesome make it easy uh for us to read it when the time is nigh uh which could be coming soon and or if anybody uh accesses the book and would be down to narrate i guess if i get it and you would be down to narrate Let me know. That would be great, uh, so that I don't have to do it, and I can focus on other tasks. So narration, and then nabbing a PDF or e-version of Bill Russell's Second Wind, which does look very good. Oh my God! He talk. I can even read. Let me let me give a sample. Then we get the other people that dialed in. I posted. I was flipping through. Like this is amazing. Like I can't believe I I never even heard uh, of this book. Uh, specifically and he's written several books so that probably uh, contributed to it as well let me see if I can uh, give you one quick snippet because he has like black self-respect incidents and okay let's see let's see oh my god (laughs) which one do I think I've already heard so I'm going to give you the second one even though uh, he, he has so many that are absolutely amazing Um, he talks about being I I give you we can hopefully we'll read the books. you can hear about this police stop incident that's great too I'm going to give you a different one so this is from his book Second Wind uh, the chapter Family Heroes it reads page 36 uh, other than Mr. Charlie who is his father uh, he explains why they call him Mr. Charlie I relied on books during this time withdrawal in junior high had my own private world and my most prized possession was my library card from the Oakland Public Library Oakland Bay Area I went to I went there almost every day and it was not long after my 13th birthday when I read two passages that focused the grief I felt over my mother's death into forces that I've had to contend with ever since the first passage was in a book on early American history. I was breezing along through a chapter on the American Revolution when I did a double take on one sentence. It was as if <clears throat> Oh, there we go. It was as if somebody had stuck a foot out there on the page and tripped my mind as it went by. Metaphor! I looked again and this sentence jumped out at me despite the hardships they suffered most slaves enjoyed a higher standard of living and a better life in America than they had in their primitive African homeland I had to get up and walk out of the library for weeks afterward I went around in a fog the sentence stunned me there it was written plainly that people were better off here as slaves than they had been as free people at home i couldn't believe anyone had the nerve to say something like that especially in a history book my brother and i had always had a special reverence for history books if something was written down in one we believed it meant you could rely on it without question history was the final referee on what was true we had one in the house and we used to settle arguments by saying let's look it up in the book and now here in a history book was an attack on my very essence as a person that day in the library is still vivid to me I remember that I was sitting at a long table with my right forearm across the top of the open book and my left forefinger running down the page the way I used to read. I remember being so taken aback by the sentence that I couldn't I couldn't swallow. I thought of darkest Africa pretty much the way young white boys must have thought of it as a place where Tarzan ran around among animals and white doc, witch doctors. I didn't know or care what slavery or Africa really was like, but I was repulsed by the idea that life could be better without freedom. To me, being a slave meant you had to buckle under. As far as I can remember, this was the first time I was ever enraged. I had been scared before. Like once when a white man chased me across a field in Louisiana threatening to hang me for throwing a pebble at his car. I remember now you talk about being stunned and your mind being tripped. I read this and said, so... The main story is not the white man who tried to hang you; it's what you read in the history book. <laughs> like, wee. like, man, that Bill Russell is something. Not that the history part is is unimportant, but wow, like, so the lynching is just kind of one sentence. That's it. <laughs> like, man, woo. That's why I say we need to read this book. Anyway. He continues white man tried to lynch me. Yes. Uh Woo but I hadn't been angry because such occasions were too big and I was too small. They were simply things I discovered as the world revealed itself to me no different from discovering comic books, schoolrooms, or crocodiles, except that they hurt. But there in the library with another hurt, it was as if I could say no. For the first time, I felt grounded in anger and it would last for years to come. Uh, Ooh, yeah, the rest of that is all. Yeah, see, that's why we need to read this book. He goes on to talk more about what happened at the library, but that is for the book club. We will see Bill Russell the Great his book, Second Wind. So, if anybody can nab that PDF ebook copy, that would be great. And then, if anyone's willing to narrate, that would be awesome as well. Untiljustice at gmail. dot com. Let's see. Our caller in Florida with us as well. I'll look out for other folks. Star six one. If you have commentary, uh, caller in Florida should be with us.
12: Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, that, that was a very interesting uh, part of the uh, book that you had just read. I want to learn more about that as well. Uh, but the audio segment, I noticed, I think it was the one where the black male, I guess, was, Uh, listening to the audio of the, I think that they said it was a vendor, maybe for like AT&T or something like that. And it sounded like he used the word nigger or something like that, a nigger. And he was saying like how, I think he said it was surprised or something. And he would like to sit down and talk to him and everything. Um, it, it, It just sounds like he's trying to gain more understanding of the system of white supremacy and in uh, uh, VGQ, I'm just thinking that I don't, I don't think that race soldier would want to sit down and talk. Um, you know, that was one thing I was thinking about. And the, the documentation factor, like how they have that camera uh, or the video and audio, that's uh, that can be very effective for non-white people or black people to use when it comes to making a report about racism. Um, to to catch them using slurs like that, uh, and the other audio segment where I think that was a white person, I was speaking about uh, Bill Russell and how I think he was. I don't I don't think they used the word suspicious, but that's the word I'm thinking in my mind about how he didn't want to really sign autographs or something like that because he was thinking in his mind that, Hey, I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if you are one of these people that's practicing racism. Those are words I'm using and you're pretending, or I guess, you know, pretending to, to so-called like me because I'm an athlete. You want me to sign an autograph for you. And, you know, if I wasn't, that's what it sounded like to me that if I wasn't an athlete, you know, a basketball player, you know, you'd be trying to practice racism and terrorize me. That's what it sounded like to me. You know, I, I thought that was interesting that he said that. But even though he played in the league, still was being mistreated anyways. Um, and, it, and it made me think of the, I think that was Ron Artest when he went into that crowd. You know, I think that was a racist that um that caused him to react that way. To uh, get into a physical altercation, and there's been many other um, situations like that that have happened more recently in sports, uh, with racism being a huge problem and it still is. And one last thing, there was a a, a news segment I saw here locally about the governor. Um, DeSantis, he suspended uh, a state attorney for not wanting to enforce, I guess, the the abortion laws or something like that. And what was interesting was that when he, like, when they were showing the uh, the news segment and the the, the still images, the, the still image they showed was this white racist suspect, state attorney here in Florida. He had he was hugging on three black children when they when they use those particular words, the abortion law. So um I wanted to share those uh reports or observations and that's all I have to say. Uh thanks for allowing me to share.
21: Wow. Now that's powerful image the guy that we are getting rid of he's not you know following the law or what have you they they posed or they show him with some black children now, out of all the images that they had in the phone <laughs> i am like I don't know that's the most recent image that's what he was doing that morning or what have you but that is wow that is uh <laughs> I, don't, I don't, if i was in trouble i'm just saying with my understanding of white supremacy racism I'm in trouble. That is not the time that I want them to put up stock photos of me hanging out with Kanye West and OJ Simpson. Like, no way. Like, it has got to be some image. We're at me with some white children. Like, it's got to be that. Put that up there. Like, that's what I'm a good guy. Like, hey, don't be messing around like I've just been kicking it and, you know, helping out the, the negros of, of Florida. Now, come on now ship be sinking that's what that sounds like to me Put you up with black you're like oh yeah it's dark days in Florida Uh, Ron DeSantis 2024 Uh, let's see the the fella who was talking about Bill Russell now the person doing the interview uh, that Matt Baskin I believe and I think that is someone who'd be classified as white the person who was talking in the interview Peter Roby I believe, is a non-white male. That notwithstanding, I think uh, the logic portion of it, totally flawless. Like, absolute, why would I want to sign? Or uh, You might be the fellows who broke into my house and defecated in my bed. <laughs> like, what? what is incorrect about that logic? Like, yeah, I do remember that in the uh, interview where they questioned, like, yeah, you know, he doesn't want to sign auto. like, hey, uh, and they did. I think that was even suggested in the interview, like, well, they can't root for you and practice racism. Yes, they did. Uh, Red Arbuck, Arnold is his name. He talked about Bill Russell's a player coach. I don't even, I don't, I'm not even aware if they have other player coaches in the league, much less a player coach who won two championships. He said Bill Russell, they won a championship as player coach and he had racist white people saying, hey, are you going to fire that Negro? He said, we just won the championship. Let me repeat my question, Red. Are you going to fire that Negro? (laughs) Bill Russell, Boston. Uh, Rob Parker's article again, Black Journalist is titled Boston didn't deserve Bill Russell for sure and I mean for reals if he made that much of an impact just yesterday we played the segment talking about black construction workers in Boston can't get job I thought Bill Russell made all that Kevin Garnett Paul Pierce Robert Pair we made all this progress. big poppy we made all this, hey, you know, niggers in the union. Yeah. Right. I'm totally with you. Uh Mr. In fact, that's why I said we got to read Second Wind. He didn't even have a public jersey retirement. I have never heard of that like in professional sports in my life. Anybody, much less a Hall of Famer getting their jersey retired. And I'm not doing it publicly because of racism. Same logic he used with the autographs. I'm not going to have you all come in here. Mr.
0: Russell, yay, number six. Woo.
21: No way after you have sat here, nigga this and nigga that and nigga that. Matter of fact, I almost used the image. We got to read Second Wind. The Celtics. Bill Russell is the reason the Celtics franchise is what it is in the NBA. They're one of the legendary teams in professional sports. Bill, before Bill Russell came to the Celtics, they had never won anything. He leaves, they've won 11 championships. And wait a minute, in the middle of them winning 11 championships in the 13 years that he played for them, two as player coach, nobody boston was not a rabid boston celtics town because they hadn't won anything uh people were not in love with the team why arnold red arbuck he started five negro players and it wasn't even like a you know i'm trying to be martin luther king i got the spirit or what have you i think somebody got injured and you know There we go. They they didn't even recognize that they had done this. Someone else had to alert them to the fact that you all were the first NBA team to start five Negro players. In the midst of all of this, who happened to all be very good, I think most of them went to the Hall of Fame. Anyway, Sam Jones, Mr. Clutch, he was one of the ones that they wouldn't allow to eat in Kentucky. Mr. Nigger. In the middle of all that, White people in Boston are not going to the garden. Imagine that. Your sports team is winning not one championships 11 in 13 years. They're not going to the games. Why? What do white people do? They study. They conduct a poll. What is the one thing that is keeping you from coming out to support the team? Too many Negros. Now go sign autographs. Bill Russell. Racism. and In the middle of all that, he is a victim of Cointelpro. They got him under surveillance. Not for protection we're going to make sure that people are not coming in to break in your house defecating your bed Ah, ah. no count uppity nigra not going to sign autographs we'll keep an eye on him and he's hanging out Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali and Medgar Evers or at least his brother's family gotta watch that boy We got to read Second Wind. I don't think there's anything dastardly in it. I could be wrong, but you heard. It's lots of what I read. I could have picked like, oh my gosh, I was amazed. Every page, like, are you serious? Are you? His parents are amazing. They said that you generally do not get exceptional people by chance. It takes, what is it, a village? His parents and grandparents are exceptional. (laughs) Black Self, I lost count. He has so many stories where one of his black male relatives gets a weapon to confront a racist white man. The great Bill Russell. Let me see. Anything else? I want to make sure I get in. Oh, the Cointel. you talking about Cointel Pro, we played that segment. They talked about Ernest Withers, photographer say he also so-called informant worked for the FBI I thought it was so important at that segment that was on PBS they included Dick Gregory called him a Judas Mr. Withers black male victim of racism I said oh man the late Dick Gregory he hates our guts I said also Dick Gregory he believes in name calling name calling other black people heard that already today I even I would encourage folks if you go back and listen to some of the archives of Dick Gregory, man, can you pick out times where he name calls white people? It'll be way easier to pick out times where he name calls black people, but any including Ernest Withers, anyway, they said Andrew Young forgiving about Mr. Withers said, Hey, we didn't have anything to hide. We knew we were being watched no secrets mr fuller says that not gonna be any secrets anyway race soldiers they're gonna know what's going so hey just be open you're not gonna have anything to hide anyway be open with your codification logical they say in the clip well that's you know yeah he's old and foggy and everything we talked to him back then i bet you he would have thought he was a coon hmm. <laughs> like dude what I thought they were about nonviolence and all that. Never mind. We talked to Charles E. Cobb. He has as the conclusion of his book: hey, nonviolence, black people being nonviolent with each other, that is so-called revolutionary. That's like the conclusion of his book. We talked about that when he was a guest on the program. Man, nobody sits around. Same thing we said. We talked about William O'Neill this week, Fred Hampton. Mr. O'Neill, so-called informant, victim of racism, also a suicide victim. Who's his boss, Roy Mitchell? Who's his boss? Who recruited Ernest Withers? Hey, this boy's a good photographer. Hey, we can recruit him and be great. He's got access to all these. let be a. Grot. Who recruited him? Who's his name? Who's this white person? How many people did it? Same thing I said about Roy Mitchell. How many Ernest Withers did he have on staff? For how long? For what purpose? All that, as opposed to we just going to sit around and another black. Oh, you Judas and you coon. And uh, we can do it. Okay, okay, okay. We've done it. A- and again, now, white people, they can manipulate all of us. Sit and put- how old was Ernest? Same thing we say with William O'Neill. William O'Neill, who was 18 <laughs> at the time that he was recruited. Oh, okay. I got it. That with brain still developing at 18. Race soldiers got lots of ways to manipulate us to doing all kinds of things. White people can show you better than I can tell you on that one. And even at the end of the day, I have never seen where sitting around and name calling black people. I've never seen where that has solved any. And I mean, not one problem. Not even worth getting you a glass of water, half a glass, teaspoon. Name calling black people, disgraceful. Even name calling white people, even that won't get you a teaspoon of water like done with name calling. Put that away with midnight basketball as we get closer to 2025. Everybody good? Anything else folks need to get in shortly before we conclude?
27: yes sir and and I am tired of going to funerals uh, i uh felt obligated to go to one this morning It's like once every uh month and a half so be uh aware of your health. And yes, I would say that uh most of these uh uh quote unquote celebrations. I, I don't know if celebrations or ceremonies are on behalf of a person who did not die violently. The person died because of poor medical poor uh medical health. And uh so be aware of that and uh where you need fixing Uh, work towards uh, fixing yourself preferably with uh, better foods uh, so you can uh, uh, basically live as long as you possibly can. And with that, in the most healthy state that you're uh, want to attain or can attain. Uh, and that's all I have to say. Thank you.
21: Hmm. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Folks good. Soon folks. Are satisfied? Much obliged for the folks who tuned in uh, live and or archive uh, for sure. Eating better, super important, especially if they're not going to have drugstores around you and all the rest of it. Like, yes, invest as well as we can in our health. That is sleeping correctly. Mr. Fuller talks that for correct uses of time and energy, sleeping correctly, getting adequate sleep early enough and then eating correctly get those fresh fruits vegetables uh, stay away from those processed foods lots of water, stay away from the sodas, carbonated uh, beverages and all the rest of it drinking water, especially now that it's summertime, I like, can't emphasize that enough hit the farmer's market uh, like it is super fresh, ripe season for all kinds of goodies Uh, look for yellow water, look for even some exotic fruits and things that you haven't tried before Uh, but yeah, hit the farmer's market and get some fresh fruits and vegetables that is an investment in your health and counter racism constructive double whammy Uh, with that sobriety would be best, we need high functioning brain computers to solve this problem in addition to being sober you're out and about You are alert. Someone is being hostile, rowdy, loud. You are out of there. You don't know if this person is armed. In fact, when I talked about Natasha Fuller, that was a black female. She was accosted. She had her earbuds in by this white fella. He had a gun. They didn't find that out until after he turned himself in, reportedly. But he was armed. That's what I mean. You have to think it's quite a bit you have to consider when you're out in public and this is something that's just spontaneous you didn't plan man exit if you can and quickly you can make a report as you're leaving you don't know if that person is armed may have an armed entourage if you're in a vehicle you're sober buckled not on your cell phone just doing the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that said Are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name-calling no gossiping no reckless production of offspring quickly that segment on Hoboken New Jersey where they've had no traffic fatalities now in a number of years 70% white approximately according to demographics that are reported online. 70% white less than 10% black. That's what I mean. Those types of areas, they generally do not have a lot of flim flam and mealy mouth excuses for why we can't have safety measures. No traffic fatalities for pedestrians in Hoboken, New Jersey, less than 10% black people. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
0: Nigga, you so
3: brainwashed.
0: I'm a victim, brother. problem.
3: You're a victim.
0: Yeah.
3: I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Uh-huh. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> <laughs>